My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with your... Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? Insurance and wealthy doing weird stuff. So you have Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? So Maslow wrote in anthropology and psychology that there's a pyramid, which is the model people like. I think he's more of a trapezoid. Because once you get to the top of the trapezoid, you fall off. You don't end up on the pyramid. The pyramid is one of those If you're on the trapezoid, you're on an altar. You can be sacrificed by the pyramid, but it's a little different. But so many people are stuck in this paradigm of, dude, how can these people worry about reptiles running the country when I can't get food, you know, or whatever. Cause it's, if you're focusing on the bare essential survival, you're still in your reptilian part of your brain, I think is the, at least the metaphor we use. So many people are unable to get out of that. The blue blood crabs. And so something that comes up in theosophy is the color blue, the, the idea that blue didn't exist. At one point there wasn't a color, and all of a sudden the shift, you can see the color, but green is so important. And the original color for Egyptian blue was green. There's all these stories about not being able to see blue, that Homer couldn't see blue. He describes the oceans and the Odyssey as wine colored the sky, as honey for the grass screen, but no blue. You, you ancient flags, red, green, yellow, no blue. So blue starts to emerge as this like wow all of a sudden blue everyone and who's using blue freemasons and J- jacobins and eventually it becomes a pirating you know, like the, the american flag is this a grid of like we've taken over and we've recolonized and we've reset and we're combing the earth and building super cities with super strip malls you know which like that that has a lot to do with the sterilization color of blue the un's color is blue you know so blue is kind of a dangerous thing but in the original philosophy story no one could see it and all of a sudden the invocation of this ritual made it possible for seeing things that were already there that are beyond the veil and the blue blood crab right simultaneously the osophics involved with the methuselah foundation which is like an immortality organization they're always studying the blue blood crabs the elite blue blood royals like yeah they're even blue blood crab blood they this is another i think mark twain you can definitely connect to this because he has staying on blue blood crabs which ends up becoming the most valuable crabs like hundred thousand dollars for a liter of their blood and now they're making synthetic adrenochrome from blue blood crabs
Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I'm your host, Mark Palmer, and on today's show, we have a returning guest, the legendary, the favorite guest. I think one of our number one received episodes and highest downloads, Andreas Exertus. That's right, the Tartarian expert and really uh, dabbler in all things strange and culturally weird. We talked about many of those topics today, starting off our conversation, talking about Joe Rogan. That's right, Joe Rogan. What did we talk about? Well, find out. Maybe a little bit of the OTO, maybe a little bit of theosophy. We didn't just talk about Joe Rogan. We talked about the Wizard of Oz and its connections to theosophy. We talked about New York City as the headquarters of theosophy and all of the weird things that go along with theosophy. We didn't spend the whole episode talking about that. We talked about a lot, as Andreas uh, is known to do. He can share a lot of information in a small amount of time. So I did my best to keep up with the flow. We talked about blue bloods. We talked about the uh, origins of man, uh, controversial stuff. If you have sensitive ears, I recommend you grow a backbone or listen once or twice and try to wrap your head around the context because it wasn't offensive. And I've been looking at this stuff for a long time. Either way, we talked about Disney. We talked about ley lines. We talked about masks and COVID, of course. Uh, we even got into the real identity of Banksy. That's right. Andreas thinks he's figured out who Banksy is. And I, I might have to agree with him. It's some pretty convincing stuff. Either way, stick around for that. And if you're listening to this show on the free side of things, we appreciate you. We love you. But we'd love it more if you gave us some support on Patreon or Rockfin. We also have a subscribe star. We have a PayPal, uh, buy me a coffee. There's so many ways. Go to the link tree. It's all there. Go to the website, myfamilythinksimcrazy.com. We have art for sale. Tara, my lovely girlfriend, is a painter, and she's been painting some really cool stuff that is available for you to buy and have shipped to your lovely home. Uh, as well, me, Mark Palmer, Mystic Mark, as I used to call myself when I was an artist, and I still am an artist, making crystal pendants. Those are now for sale on our website. Go to myfamilythinksimcrazy.com slash shop and check those out. We've got a lot of really heady pendants, as the festival scene likes to call them. But I think they're high energy, and I make them with love. Uh, I'm very detailed, and I also try my best to match the crystal's energy together. So each pendant is unique. It's not something you can get in a store. And uh, yeah, check that out if it sounds like your thing. We can't do this show without your support. I have a few freelance jobs that I do, but this is it, folks. This is my full-time, full-time. This is what I spend my time doing, and I love it. And I'd love it if you supported the work via Patreon. And if you do, you'll get a spirit animal name. We already had three new patrons sign up yesterday, and our first subscriber on subscribe star so let's keep that momentum going support the show and keep this train on the tracks all right that does it for the support we've got some sponsors that's right if you have some reiki needs check out audrey lobdell in the sponsors 
you want to spruce up the vibes in your room, check out Akasha Goods. They've got candles and they've got some services too. Uh, different cookbooks and ways to heighten, enlighten your health. Speaking of enlightenment, I find enlightenment in the forest. Check out a forest bathing session with Fru. Forest bathing. It's in the description. Anyways, that does it for the sponsors. We love our sponsors. Thank you, Audrey. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you, Fru. We appreciate you. And we most importantly appreciate the listeners of the My Family Think Some Crazy podcast. And you're here with us into the new year. This is 2021 going on 2022. I hope you enjoy this third conversation with Andreas Exertus. If you haven't listened to the first two, go back and check those out. Uh, he comes back and kicks ass for a third time. Buckle your seatbelts, folks, and enjoy this conversation with my friend, Andreas Exertus. Well, let's get into it, brother. We're recording. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being here. We have a returning guest with us, someone who I'm sure you're familiar with because he's been one of the biggest guests we've had on the show in terms of downloads. So thank you, Andreas, for joining us a third time. How you been lately, man? How, how's everything going with, with you and the in the camp you're in down there? Great. Thank you for the compound. It sounds yeah, the compound, right? The Cast Castle, right? Well, we got a, you go to vlog, you can check the Cast Castle YouTube. And now we do dailies. So you can see pretty much every day what's going on there. We're basically, you know, doing all the surveillance on ourselves to make it convenient for everybody, you know. But yeah, no, things are pretty good. Like we had, uh, we did our trip where we went down to see Joe Rogan in Texas. And uh, there was also, <laughs> we all got sick, you know, and that's why we kind of were, were talking to Joe, right? Because I got, the, the house got covid Delta uh, variety after, you know, we were very careful. We had like an event and people thought we were like doing, got COVID at the event. There was no one, any problems at the event. It was afterwards, somebody who didn't go to the event because they were afraid they might get sick, came to the house and then they were the person who spread whatever we got. But then we got, you know, Joe Rogan, like get, send a medical care. Basically we got NAD plus, which is like a mononicotinamide. And we added, it also had vitamin water and monoclonal antibodies. So the, the monoclonal antibodies and the mononicotinamide NAD plus treatments like an IV thing, you pump it through and within 12 hours we were like fine. So it's kind of interesting because if, if, you know, on one hand the argument is okay, like there's a cure, but it's for the elite. But on the other hand, it's like, this is mononicotinamide, it's vitamin B, but you can get that, but there, it shouldn't be so hard. And it should be, if you're doing treatment, it's something that's available to people, something we could make more, you know, accessible. So it's something that I think people should talk about more. And like, if someone in your family is sick, you know, definitely look into NAD plus, like I'm not a doctor so much, like you've talked to a doctor, you know, but if your doctor is aware of a treatment, it's like, it, it's, it's, it's something that I've heard from people saying also that they save their family's lives you know, members of their family after they've switched to trying to use uh, monoclonal antibodies instead of like vaccines or whatever else, you know, kinds of things that they were, you know, which have like 11% effectivity for the next variants and whatever, it's, you're still going to need monoclonal. The best 
support for your immune system is your own, you know, supporting your own immune system. So you can actually do the NAD plus like any time. Like it doesn't even have to be when you're sick, you know, it's just, <laughs> it'll make you probably like uh, Tim was saying that he sees better now. Like he had like kind of a stigmatism and his eyes are starting to get better. So there's some, so it's kind of an interesting thing. I mean, I've but read yeah. books about that cause I, I too have uh, vision issues and, and I've heard from several people who actually have guested on some big podcasts. I think Jake Steiner comes to mind. Maybe that name's correct. And they talk about how you can actually reverse this, not just astigmatism, but nearsightedness and farsightedness, which is really interesting, you know, because we have this idea that it's like chronic, you know, like, oh, you have glasses once, you have glasses for your whole life. And it just seems like a construction of the the lens crafters or something, because they have a huge monopoly on that whole industry. I don't know if, if you looked into that at all, but there's a pretty strange monopoly on the whole, uh, you know, frames industry. It's interesting also glasses, like it's crystal ball work. They use slice a crystal ball to get a lens. So wow, it's yeah. an interesting like alchemical science, but there was, you know, the LASIK surgery was invented in the Soviet Union because there was a guy who got metal shavings in his eye at some sort of a obelisk. And then they, when they got it out of his eye and they healed it, they realized he could see better. So part of it was the cornea grows stronger when it heals itself. But yeah, it's like a muscle. So, I mean, if you're using glasses, you might end up with flabby cornea or some sort of retinal problems. So yeah. if you continue to stretch your eyes and the Alice Huxley has a book on how he trained his eyes to see again. Huh. So there are, you know, there are techniques. Yeah. On the point but, of COVID though, I've also heard recently in the, in the vein of like strange cures, cannabis, uh, people who are frequent cannabis users have a sort of defense inherently with that against SARS. Yeah, I mean, I think that idea of apoptosis, right? That it's good for you to have, you know, in a selective white blood cells that are trying to work as antibodies in your system. It's, it's radically enhanced something like 12% to 20%. And some people have seen like glaucoma research and everything already. So the, the, the increase in apoptosis, but there's doing also these weird kinds of cannabis I've been hearing about, which I think are doing more medical good than recreational, you know, interests or humor. People are trying the Delta 10 thing and the Delta 9. And some of these different kinds of, like, I think the Delta 10 and the C THC Delta 10, and there's also CBD Delta 8, you know, these different kinds that are, they seem like they don't, they don't do anything because people are expecting them to be making them feel, you know, hallucinogenic or something, but instead it seems like they're actually helping with health more. And so this is interesting. If people can start to take the various kinds of benefits of cannabis, then we might've actually just, you know, it might be the best thing about this really, because so for so long, it's just all been, is it, is it THC Delta nine? You know, will I get high? I mean, like, that's not the, the way we should be looking at, you know, plant medicine. Right. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a strange sector of, uh, of our world i just had a conversation with chaz of the dead all about psychedelics and paranormal and how the two intersect in so many different ways and then even ufos came into the mix but one thing that i really wanted to get into today because i don't know lately on the show we've kind of had a theme not really a, a proper theme but in the sense of like i've been really interested in what's going on and we've talked about this first couple times you're on the show been really interested in what's happened in my own state, you know, things that I can maybe like drive to look at. And somebody who came up on your uh, most recent appearance on Tinfall Hat was Mark Twain and his connection to like 
adrenochrome, which, you know, isn't too far away from the subject we were just on. I mean, in the, you know, in the deep, dark fringe subjects that the medical, you know, hold the whole body of medicine harbors, it's definitely like true blood. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really strange area. And I'm like so fascinated that Mark Twain came up as a connection there because people who are from Connecticut or have been to Connecticut know he's, you know, Hartford native and, and there's a big like, I mean, if we want to go and connect Tartaria, there's this big arch that's like built in monumentum of him at this park. And so there's a lot of interesting things about Mark Twain. Absolutely. Yeah. Samuel Clemens, you know, there's so many things where he's this famous, you know, fiction writer, but he's used for writing newspapers and for writing stories about new places. Like some of his early work, you know, the newspapers were, you know, in Hawaii, we talked about Hawaii and how he created a story about, you know, how awesome Hawaii was. And when you start looking for stuff before that, there's no index, there's no bibliography for his, you know, little newspaper journal. And it's not real. Like so much of it is, is not, I mean, it's concocted from things he's heard, which is fantastic, but he also is creating stories on his own. That's something that more people should probably do is just study Mark Twainology. Just what are the, the root stories, you know, that he's, in, he's being influenced by, but it's not, it's not just fiction. That's the thing. Some of it is true. And it seems like he's the best at the fake news disinformation campaign in his generation. Like he'll go around and he'll design the story about what's going on based on what didn't really happen, you know, and then that becomes uh, a place's mythos, which is really calling at the time. So like you look at like Washington Irving and he's, he's got this story about how people thought the world was this flat thing before Columbus finds the spheroid. I mean, it's not in any history book before this novel in 18, what, 12, I think, right around the time when he goes to Alhambra. So Washington Irving also starts creating these stories, but Mark Twain, you know, influences in the same light as, you know, Irving becomes an American, uh, you know, hero for story writing. Mark Twain becomes this American hero. He creates stories that are so close to what people are going through. It's almost like the Spider-Man comic books. You're like, oh yeah, that could be in Manhattan. I, I think I've heard of that city. So the rest of it could be true. And every, every step along the way, it, it's, it's becoming more and more clear that he's being paid by whatever the mockingbird of the time is so that he can make stories for the elite, for banking people. Cause it's, it's valuable to have control over the narration of history. And it's at a time when people are still finding out for the first time about all these places. So he's the authority on a place he's never been before. And then, in, and often it'll be part of his story. It's like, Oh, I'm going there to visit it. And it's like, wow, it changed my life. You know? Yeah, it's interesting. I found, you know, synchronistically like a month that month that that episode came out, I found a book about the the hidden history of Litchfield County, which is the county next to where Hartford is. And the first Hawaiian person allegedly that ever came to at least this state was a man who came to a, a town called Bantam, which is based off a Native American word for Piantum which means Christianized Indian, right? So it's interesting that this Hawaiian guy came all the way to Connecticut and was basically Christianized and then sent back as a missionary, you know, and to your point about Mark Twain, you know, writing all these stories about a place he'd never been, who knows, maybe he heard wind of this Hawaiian Islander in the state of Connecticut all the way back then. But yeah, it is fascinating. What what exactly is there to say about Mark Twain or Samuel Clemens and his relation to adrenochrome? Well, I mean, 
I mean, that's, it's an interesting line of uh, thought. I haven't like pursued it as like literally as that. I know like there's a lot of stories about, you know, immortality in, in, involving with the alchemical, you know, alchemy, you know, alchemist stone and the people were in the elite, you know, the, they were involved with these, you know, wild parties and he was involved with some wild parties. The Star Trek uh, Next Generation has episodes where he's in time with the you know, Whoopi Goldberg character, who's a you know immortal and a time traveler, and so it's often inferred that he's sort of connected to the the writers. You know, this is like that Kevin, the Sir Francis Bacon Shakespeare kind of thing. Like, is is he the Dread Pirate Roberts, or is the character something that embodies it and lives on forever? And there, there are stories, right? Like about people that are immortal. It's not too far off. Like that some people could be, you know, able to extend their life to a point where at the sacrifice of others, um, they're able to stay young. I don't know though. Like, what do you have on Mark Twain and Adrena Crown specifically? What, what got you into that thought of questioning? Just what I had heard you mention on Tinfoil Hat, I thought there was a, a connection there, but I, I could be misremembering. I, I don't know. Well, I mean, there's definitely stories about, you know, his connection with the elite and these elite parties where people were sacrificed. And, you know, like Walt Disney has connections to Connecticut, right? And the, the mouse being from the train he took across America, it, it was in Connecticut. I think it's in, I don't know if it's, if it's uh, in Bridgeport, I think is where he started his train trip because originally Walt Disney had worked with, he had a bunny rabbit character, Oswald the rabbit, and then it was stolen from him by the company that they had used to finance the, the Disney company. So in order to get out of New York, they went through Connecticut to California and the tram they took had a mouse on it supposedly. So there, there seems to be like, you know, continued connection with, with Connecticut in general. I think so, like with Mark Twain, it's it more that he was involved with the elite and the elite were doing these, you know, bloodletting parties and rituals. The name Mickey is from like a bar guy who would, he would drunk the paid or, or if people would be known to be drunk to have a, a Mickey slip to them. Right. And the, that was part of what, you know, the, the name at the time that was most common, you know, associated with Mickey. So it was this idea of like a sleeper thing that can be used to influence like public consciousness. Wow. Like that subconscious kind of playing, hinting at these things in a subconscious way, like Mickey Mouse is sort of like allusion to being put under a state of hallucination. And I mean, look at some of the Disney movies and the Disney work. It's very magical. Some would even say dreamlike, but you had some more stuff to bring to the table about Disney. Am I correct here? Yeah, actually, I could go, I could go a little deeper on yeah, that. Yeah, let's get into because, that. Well, you know, so, well, Disney was, I did a series at one point on DuckTales because I got really interested in the mythology of DuckTales. And starting to go through it, you start to realize that Walt Disney is a Rosicrucian. He was into Egyptian and Indian mysticism and African uh, magic in general. And he went to these clubs where they were interested in sorcery and they did all kinds of cool stuff, but they were, you know, the funny outfits. So you can see where Disney got into like magic, like as a thing for like, ooh, illusion and it's fun. And like movies will carry on like more than just the theater, they're, they're carrying on the, the circus and the comics, but there's so much to his mythology that I didn't realize before. So it, Goofy and is Seth, the God of Chaos, Horus, or sometimes Osiris, but usually Horus is duck, uh, Donald Duck. And you have these, you know, diametric, you know, oppositions. Pluto, the the dog, he, he ends up coming through a episode where there's a, a goat named Capricorn. 
that gets killed by eating too much tobacco. Like it's like a brick of tobacco. And that's where the Capricorn character dies and Pluto rises, right? And there's, you know, Neptune cartoons and there's all sorts of these characters which represent like the, the, the planets, the luminaries and everything else. But the mouse is a weird one. You know, I mean, there's rabbit, you got chain me, you know, going to Mars, but where the moon, but where, where's this, you know, mouse God. And so finding the God mouse, it's like really hard to do. You start looking for a God mouse character and there's, they're few and far between, you know, like for the most part, people think of mice and rats for demons and for plagues. Like they're not like considered like the greatest thing for a lot of people. And it's interesting that, it, that if you look for, like eventually you'll find like demons, like there's tons of demons. Like Lord Krancha is a demon from India that was a musician, a hypnotist, would lure, it was a rat god that would lure people into uh, believing and loving, you know, this, you know, the dancing kind of the Pied Piper thing, like it's, it's a hypnotic rat god, but Ganesh is, you know, pink elephant, right? Like rides in and conquers Lord Krancha and rides around on him. I never noticed really that much, like even all my life I've seen like Hindu God pictures, but I hadn't seen that there was a rat in almost every picture of Ganesh. Ganesh has got a, he's either standing on it or being pulled by it. So that he's surfing on a rat or he's being pulled by a rat. It looks like Splinter. It's this giant super rat character, but that's Lord Croncha. And he's being conquered by the pink elephant. So, you know, then I was thinking about Disney. It's like, oh, wow. Look how many times Disney talks about Ganesh. And Ganesh is the, you know, in charge of the demon. So there's all of a sudden a new level to the Solomonic magic that's being performed here because Ganesh is the, the operative then for the mouse and he's the mouse and the elephant. And you start to see Dungbo with this little mouse character that meets the elephant. And then he dreams with the alcohols and pour it into the pool. The clowns pour the pool. He sees these, you know, pink elephants on parade. And so there's just so much more symbolism to like Disney's plan for the mouse. Cause he was so upset about what they'd done with this rabbit. So I'm going to take over. And that's, and that's also like so many people think like, well, Disney was this horrible or is because of Disney today, the way it is, they think Disney is always being this way and that Disney was a way. And it seems like Disney had his own problems, but not the same ones. I mean, there are crazy stories about Disney. There's the kid who played Peter Pan died in an unmarked grave in New York after becoming addicted to amphetamines and was, you know, homosexually prostituting himself. And had, there's all kinds of, you know, speculation was Disney molesting, you know, one of these child stars. So it's, 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 it's not necessary. It's completely speculative. It's not, it's, it's not yeah, speculative and it's not provable. So right. anytime that people say that you have to take that with a grain of salt, it's, but it's, I'm saying it only so that, you know, cause I'm not hiding that that is, you know, stories that have existed, but for the most part, Disney comes off as this like isolatory figure who was self afraid. He was a self-esteem issues and was trying to, you know, take over and was very brutalist. And so many of these animators, like when they, when they had a strike, cause they wanted more money and they wanted their names and things, they took their names and demanded to put on the movie. Disney just said, okay, I'm going to take pictures of all of these protesters and report them to the FBI for being unionist, communist, socialist sympathizers, which for him, he thought would get him back his team without having to pay them more, but also ingratiated himself with the FBI and then the OSS and CIA. So he was constantly under surveillance and he probably already was, you know, in a sense, because like, if you're famous and you have money, like you have to be watched all the time, but he was, 
at that point, you know, Mickey Mouse Club became MK Ultra, right? Over the period of his death. And he'd created uh, Walt Disney World. At least he bought the property privately for all of this land to make Walt Disney World. And he announced it and died two months later of a surprise lung cancer condition. So there's always been speculation that he was suicided or taken out, you know, and put to sleep. And now Disney, the company that it is today, is not the Disney it was before. It still is a magic based company. And so that's where you start to notice, like, why do they want so much? What was he doing with the Fantasia and these, you know, symbols of the hippopotamus and the ostrich and these Egyptian gods? Like, what is he doing with Rosicrucian symbolism before today? But now it's so much more common. I mean, I guess, or maybe that's not the word, socially acceptable to the point of being uh, ubiquitous. It's ambiguously ubiquitous, cult, esoteric, culture. Even more yeah. just available to people to to look into, right? It's just more available. I mean, in those days, you'd have to be a part of a group or or find the right book somehow in the library, possibly. Yeah, I mean, it's still, it's still kind of like that, but yeah, I guess you can do it on your own now. But back then, in the sense that you're still being watched, but you can't watch back through the television, through the monitor. But in the old days, yeah, you'd go to a club, like Disney went to the Reservations Lodge and you would meet people. And so making these alliances, you know, like the Unarius cult, which were believing that aliens were light beings coming to California and were going to, you know, like take over in 1988. They were really deeply connected with Reagan's wife because she was into astrology. And, you know, Joan, was it Joan Quivers, right? She was a, one of the astrologists who worked with uh, the Unarius. So on the level where everyone's associated together, it seems like people were closer because of that. But maybe, you know, now you have people that are distant in a better way too, because we're so much more intimate with around the world. But the thing is, I, I don't, I just didn't want to say that magic is more accessible because I don't know if that's true. I feel like the idea of the esoterics, these secret books, there were just way more secret clubs back then. Like there were, it was way more common in every town that people were going to a lodge. So the fact that it's rare today to do that is it makes it confusing because at one point, I just, well, of course, what else do you do? There's a lodge in every, you know, every couple of blocks, there's another lodge. So... Right. I guess by more available, I guess I meant like, you know, there's no acceptance process. You could pretty much just order these books online and get into it yourself if, if you're you know inclined. But that's also the case where, you know, like you're saying, it's rarer for people to even be inclined to find those things interesting. But then when you do become interested in these things, you see it overwhelmingly, you know, like you put, pretty much ubiquitously, it's prolific throughout our society, the different symbols that we see. And even in a movie like Fantasia, which is all musical, it's there's no real dialogue in a movie like that, but the symbolism is is very pervasive. There's, 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 a, there's a number of reasons why I miss the, the old structure. I guess it's something where I, I've thought, wow, it's great. We don't, this is a generation of teacherless masters, right? We're ascending, you, you know, so many, it's like a mass ascension kind of process. And so that's also, people keep using those two terms, the reset and the great awakening, even though it seems like they're part of a thing, they're like, it's one or the other, but really it's like, you have to have a reset to, up, to update, you know? So there's a great awakening after a reset, like it seems like that's, but we want to have that great awakening before the reset. And really all it is, is like, that's where you get all this information that makes you exhausted, you know, so you can have a reset.
So many people though, before needed to achieve efficiency, you know, like, or at least sufficiency you know, in, a, in a, in a, in a, in a form of any sort of art of practice, it mattered more. Now it matters less. It's, it's more everyone for themselves because there's nothing to gain except for yourself. And, and so for so much in the old days, when people were still trying to find books, it seems like they were trying harder to make sure that this information was verifiable and true. And now we're more in this postmodern, like, well, it doesn't matter. Like in California, they're getting rid of um, Fs and Ds, right? They're just going to have the up to, up to C, you know, do they want to have your grades make it look like you failed something because you put your time in. And so there's, there's a benefit to that because, you know, yeah, you put your time in, but at the same time, there's going to be a lot of people that pass through without cashing on to, you know, the information. And maybe people in the old days were not aware of it either because so many people went to Freemason lodges and thought it wasn't you know, they didn't see the depths of it, perhaps. Maybe that's true. I don't know if that's really true, but people made it sound like it's just this like, you know, you're there and you don't notice it, but that's what's going on today with Disney. Like so many people are watching DuckTales and they're not seeing the Egyptian mythology and they're not caring. I mean, like look at Maleficent and all of these, Disney's really in your face, an example. Like so many other channels have tried to be maybe a bit more subdued and just straight propaganda about politics, but this is straight up about dark magic and make Tron and make these movies about like what it's like to be the devil. And people don't notice that at all. Like there's no, there's no comprehension factor. Right. And you, you mentioned Ganesh and I have Ganesh on the screen for people watching on the uh, video and we're not actually, yeah, we are live on Rockfin. How did I forget? We're live on Rockfin, by the way, Andreas. I don't mean to surprise you there. But yeah, for surprise, people. Rockfin. And That's to your awesome. point, there is a mouse right there at the feet of Ganesh. And when you were talking about the mouse before, it what came to mind is the story behind the Chinese Zodiac is that, you know, all of the animals that make up the Zodiac were sort of in a race to reach the emperor. And the first one to make it was the rat, right? The rat was wise enough to know to ride on someone else's back and then, you know, jump over and make it to the the king or the emperor first. And yeah, it's definitely also like in this sort of syncretic, you know, way brings to mind the fool and the tarot card, you know, the first, you know, it's like the beginning. And so, yeah, very interesting. But is there more to expand on Ganesh as a symbol and where it comes up throughout there. I mean, it's not just with that pink elephant where, and is that from Fantasia, the pink elephant that didn't ring any bells. I know I'm familiar with Dumbo. I'm familiar with, you know, the story of the elephant and the mouse, but where, you know, where does this Ganesh figure come up in Disney's work? Uh, big elephants are, you know, there's, there's actually not only Ganesh as pink, but since it's such a common thing as the pink elephant, Dumbo is the, where you see like pink elephants. There are elephants in Fantasia and there are in general characters like the bear and the, there's a, I forget the name, it was a Bobo the bear where he interacts with like the, like the elephant. What's the thing about Dumbo though, that makes it so important about Disney's that was right during the union protests. So that was the time when he had the least energy to focus on the movie and let it, usually it would be like, do it again, you know, to like anything, but he had to just let them do their movie. So, so much more of Disney was about realism and rotoscoping to make it look like you know, it's a video or film that's been hand copied. So it's perfect. 
but it was a lot more freeform in Dumbo. There are things in Dumbo, which is almost like a Looney Tunes thing because things are bending. So there's a certain amount of give and take that went on with Dumbo. But yeah, the Pink Elephant's on parade. That's specifically in, you know, in Dumbo. But then also comes 1964, I think. It's like the first Winnie the Pooh. And, and he didn't get to see all of them because I think he died before they finished like the full Winnie the Pooh you know, series, but had done like four cartoon shorts and become the, the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh. And they have the Heffalumps and Woozles, which is basically the big elephants, but with plaid, like tartan, like all covered over. So there's a number of characters where it's like this mis misunderstanding and they're, it's constantly like, what is the pink elephant? You know, in Disney's usage of it, it's like, it's a confusing vision when it happens like every time. So it takes a while for people to, you know, in fact, I don't think they ever really explain why he sees pink elephants. It's just sort of a thing to dream he has, this this vision and it seeds him with like the future, but it doesn't, he doesn't really understand if they're flying or if they're going to help him or if they're like, he's like, they're, they're amazing, but they're terrifying. It's like, there's so much in the, in the pink elephant scene, which is that God fear mentality. Also yeah. though, there's, there's, there's the, the uh, Egyptian God. I'm trying to remember the name. I think it's Mott. And Mott is like, it means death, right? And Mott is, I think it is Mott. And so there's a, a mouse and a elephant version of the death god because there were times when they used like the they would have elephants execute people like having them step on the heads of criminals right or of you know whatever for whatever reason someone who's decided to be killed and also the mouse because the mouse is so terrified of the elephant like there's a strange relationship constantly with the elephant and the mouse which i think most of it at this point is just myth like so much of it is like are elephants really afraid of mice not not really but it's a it's a story that we've grown used to because it's because it's in why it's because it goes back so many thousands of years. Yeah. Another strange uh, piece of pop culture that has elephants in it is Babar. I don't know if you're familiar oh. with that series, but it, it has some strange themes in it. I remember watching it when I was a kid. So I looked it up just now and yeah, there's like sorcery, there's like ancient kingdoms. It's very strange stuff. And but French, French colonialization. Bab Babar is Tartar, right? Berber, Babar, Tartar. It's like the, the B, T, D, V thing with like over Greek and Roman Cyrillic alphabet from the old Ugaric. And you, there, Babar is a elephant that was raised by a French woman living in Madagascar. It ends up being the king in a post-French Madagascar, because they're saying basically it's become a state of France, now it's become a sovereign state. And so it has to return to the native control, but by a, a colonized and educated by French elephant. So there's a, there is a lot of weird, and the rhinoceri are these short-sighted African characters who are, are more interested in, you know, constantly, he's trying to build up Madagascar, but they're using uh, cheaper nails on the construction so they can save a buck, but then it destroys the, so they're constantly trying to teach lessons about colonialization. It's a pretty, it's pretty interesting. It's like the French propaganda for colonialization. Wow. Yeah. I'm glad you informed me on that. Maybe I won't recommend Babar <laughs> ever again, but yeah. Well, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's awesome. And like there, you know, like it, it, also the cartoon is a French Canadian cartoon done by Malvana. Or no, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's double. I think the French animated, but the voices are the American 
it's the, the voice of Babor is the guy from Jurassic Park who, you know, the, the, the main archaeologist guy, he's, you know, he plays the, he plays Babar. But for the most part, Babar's stories are really important. Like, even if you don't agree with French colonialization or a self-starting, you know, states, like in the Commonwealth or whatever's going on, like it teaches you so much about what's happened because you don't have any context necessarily for Thatcherism or what happened in the 60s or what happened in the 30s, especially. But you can watch movies like Bridger River Kwai and get like kind of an idea for, you know, like the, the rules that were going on. Or you can watch Babar and you can get way more because they will never tell you the truth in the thing that's directly about us, about something. But in an analogy or an allegory, they'll go deep into what really happened in this specific battle in Uganda, right? Or something like that. It'll be taken and put into a story about elephants, but it will be far more accurate than whatever news you've ever gotten. So there's reasons to watch Babar. Mm, yeah, indeed. Wow. I love it. I love the the places we can go with this lens, but to the skeptics, you know, objective, they're going to say, you know, oh, it's just Joseph Campbell. They're just using the archetypes. They're just using the myths, you know, because they're not really creative themselves. So they're trying to use powerful symbols that already resonate with the psyche. Do you, would you agree with that? Do you think it's, it's that, but there's more to it? Or do you think that's, that's it? And there is something occult about that. That's a little bit of both. Like, I mean, it, there's, it's definitely a cult and you know, a cult meaning hidden, right? So there's hidden meaning and storytellers will encrypt a story like an old piece of meaning that they had in a new rapper because they know that things change. So sometimes you try to figure out how to change the parts. And this is what storytellers really try to do is take the part that matters the least so that when and focus on that, so that when someone changes that so that they can make it their own story, they didn't notice the most important part of the story. And that ends up staying in the story. So many times over, they're trying to keep you know, old, old myth. Also, there's union archetypes. So the more you can get a universal dream language amongst people, the broader your demographic. And since it is about money to at least some people trying to make Spider-Man, you're going to use as many Bohemian Grove spider web symbolisms, you know, multiverse scenarios that involve metacubes, things that start to use the same sacred geometry so that everyone starts to see it in a uniform way. But there, there's, there's also creative people. I think we're missing what creativity really is. It's just that we're trying to much to emulate either a story that's already happened before, or we're too afraid of a new uh, resolution. Because so much of the time, it's like, this is no longer a good way to deal with something. The Tao has changed. You can't just repeat the same. You can just dig a, a new river in the shape of another river. Like you have to let it follow the path of least resistance. So most of those stories are, I, I mean, that's what, so in DuckTales, there's like, there's a new kind of DuckTales, right? Called the three caballeros. And for years it came out in like 2012, but you couldn't see it unless you had iTunes in the Philippines. It was the only country that could watch this show. And now it's on Disney plus. So, you know, check it out. DuckTales is uh, three caballeros, but they're chased by minotaurs and they have you know every single megalith on the planet his band Duck, donald duck and his three his two buddies are in a band and they have to go to these different places to perform for these monsters to you know realign the earth because these gods that they meet are old 
all the gods that people have heard of are and not quite Nietzschean. It's not quite the gods are dead, but they're very old and they're too tired. So the only god left of this new goddess, Sandra, or like Cassandra, the gift who knows the prophecy, but no one can understand what she's saying. And that's become the thing that we're dealing with. There's people that are dealing with old gods, they're dealing with old symbols, and they're dealing with old values and old you know, resolutions. And it's too much for them to process while new values are replacing them. I mean, think about it if, you know, you, you do things because of the way your life is and all of a sudden transhumanism takes away that definition from you of what individuality of personality of privacy of self, you know, of mortality of what a memory is like, you know, we can start stacking memories really soon. So much of what we're deciding our values are going away. So there has to be some data for the, in the same concept, in the, in the same story, you have to have something for the grandparents and something for the parents, something for the children. And there's three different messages because one has to help them stop. So one has to help them keep going and one has to help the others start, you know? Yeah, absolutely, man. I, I definitely, I feel like we, we need to circle back to the mouse demonology segment, because, you know, as, as you were going into all that, it dawned on me that I kind of skirted over that. And, you know, people remember, you know, this whole idea of a plague mask comes from this bubonic plague, right? They had these plague doctors with the masks on people are making that connection a couple, you know, a year or so ago when masks started being enforced. But it's interesting that the mouse plays into that somehow, or a rat even. Just vermin in general. I mean, vermin isn't the technical term, but rodent, rather. <laughs> rodent in general, right? So let's get into that a little further, because I feel like there's totally. stuff that we can touch on. Totally. I would say, like, you know, Lord Crancha, right, was the demon musician. And, you know, what they call him as this vehicle for Ganesh is the Mashika Vahana. So the Mashika Vahana is kind of this golden Vahana. The Vahanas are like these, like, UFOs, right? So he's being pulled by the spirit of this demon. And there's connection in so many other circumstances with mice being on chariots, apparently. Like Pluton, is, which is not quite Pluto, but is the death god for the Greeks, also had a Capricorn that's replaced. He had goats that are replaced by rats when he goes through hell. So there's a number of other stories about like Ganesh's Purana. And the other thing is that it starts in like the 7th century. So at least in the Fomenko, that's a fascinating thing because you've got this idea, this Fomenko chronology of 17th century and 700s and like the, the synchronicity between historical events to the point that it could be like certain stories are the same and also 700s when islam is supposed to emerge so during a time when islam is spreading through the parts of west north india and parts of tartaria and china this is this is the the, the alternative to a dogs because dogs are not acceptable according to islam and so so many of the characters start becoming more about rodents and it's this resurgent thing where people start to worship rodents and then plagues happen so that's the other thing is historically people get like Romans liked eating mice. They would lie on their lounge couch and they would just eat a, you know, a mouse on a stick. And uh, that's not good for you. I mean, it's, I guess it's okay as long as the mice are healthy, but the seed of your society rep is represented by the diet of your mice. So eventually wow. you have plagues and, you know, one of them is the dancing plague. 
And so the dancing, like you see dancing with the reaper, right? And there's what it is, is the rats. It, rats were eating the grains and there was uh, ergot mold poisoning also. So it's kind of like there's psychedelic mass hysteria and rats aspect. But the rats, they would take the bodies of people that were sick and not quite dead and throw them on piles of people who were. And then these dead people and these, you know, people that were dying were in these silos that were like chicken mesh, you know, more strong metal. And then they would wait till the end of the week and burn them. And so this whole pile of bodies would burn. It was horrible, but you had to, because it's so hot and it takes, it takes days, you know, to burn those bodies. But the rats would be eating the bodies in the week in between. And so when the fires came and the smoke came, most of the rats would escape out from the smoke and then they would go to the grain piles and reinfect grains. So the people who had the money and could afford food to buy food, you know, so the priests and the, you know, the landowners, they were the ones to get sick first. And then the people who could eventually exploit these sick people, they would get sick second. And then the people that were essentially starving to death, they were the luckiest. So pretty weird time to be alive. But that also led to people being like, wow, like rats are terrible. And this happens pretty much every reset is this idea like, man, rodents are, they, they carry a lot of disease and you have to be really careful. Another thing is Serapis Bay. So Serapis Bay was, you know, the theosophists talk about it and Blavatsky, you know, talks about the the Wizard of Oz books and like the Book of Moo, which becomes the first prequel to Wizard of Oz. All the Wizard of Oz books are kind of boundless into theosophy. And let's get into this because I just, I just listened to the uh, Wizard of Oz on audio book. Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah, and I found it really fascinating that there's like 30 or 20 or so, maybe less different, like additional stories along with that first one that the movie's semi based on. But the movie only covers really only a couple plot points from the right. that book, which is, but yeah, I found it fascinating the, the different little symbols that Baum had put in there. And I had heard that he was a Rosicrucian. You know, we might have talked about this on the show already, but. The Tin Man represents the mineral consciousness. The Lion represents the animal consciousness. Scarecrow, vegetable consciousness. And then Dorothy, I say, you know, sometimes I say the id or the ego, but sometimes other... The vessel. Or the soul. Yeah. Interesting. And there's, there's, so I'm, I'm so like lucky. My mom is like really a book reader. Like we got, we, she is the first edition of the Oz books from like 1904 to like 1918 or 14. And there was about 20 of them plus a couple more written after Bam died because he died in his like fifties, I think. So I lived through her seventies and he been, yeah, Rosicrucian, a scholar. And so he was studying like the, the Soviet society is way weirder. And it's something that I think, I don't know. I hope your audience knows a bit about it. Cause it's kind of, it, I've seen, there was a movie recently that came out from the Theosophic Society on Netflix about uh, a golden teapot, you know, that causes wishes or something like that with a couple. And, there's, and it's like a weird, normal Netflix movie. There's so many movies that are about, made by Theosophics that you don't really realize, though. So. I mean, you think, know what's really weird about that? And I hate to, like, derail you because I totally yeah. want to get into Theosophy. I think it's something we haven't talked about enough on the show. But we kind of joked about the Joe Rogan, OTO, Austin connection. Mm -hmm. But in the Austin emblem, the emblem of the city of Austin is a magical lantern, just like you're talking Absolutely. about. It's Absolutely. so strange. 
Austin is a weird, it's always been a weird, and I mean that in an awesome way, like weird is actually the Danish word for destiny, you know? So like Austin's weird in like the most etymological sense, but there's, there's magic in Texas everywhere. Like the, you know, the San Antonio has the, the cows everywhere. And like, you think about Veda and the cows and the worship of the cows and how much cows matter. They worship cows. They just murder them too. They sacrifice cows. So there's a weird thing about Texas in general, but the Theosophic Society includes people at a distance, right? So when you think about people not in the lodge that are reading at home, the Soviet Society is one of the first people to do that. And you have so many people getting these book orders. I mean, Smithson started this, Smithson started the Smithsonian. He would do this in, the, in Britain before they murdered him and they took his money and they built the Smithsonian Museum allegedly, right? Because he just died in Italy and they took his money and they said that he were a will so he wanted to bring his money to America. The, the Soviet Society had, you know, so much influence in France over the, the transcendental Marxist like the early Marx, Engels was super into these so studies. And if you read like the the the, 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 the white tree of white magic by Alison Foster Bailey, those are the earliest books that led to the Great Invocation, which the Great Invocation is the original summoning of the United Nations. The United Nations is started by Theosophic scholars. And they so much of it, it's like, okay, who cares, right? But they, they build this building that has this room that's this weird, the freaking altar and they say it's to serve not the unknown name god because remember the bible look at the burning bush and he doesn't give you his name he's like yeah i am that i am but like they they say we worship the god of many names which is essentially like you know i think there's a point where lucifer says he has many names so there's a there's a there's a bunch of people who suggest that this is a an evil thing i'm not saying it necessarily is but it's interesting they're talking about white magic black magic brightness luciferian bavarian illuminati like beyond luminance right so so much of this has to do with this idea which is culturally accepted that god and the devil are inverted because originally you have in the darkness comes out you know god is there's darkness everywhere so god is this feminine goddess womb thing that brightness emerges from and is separate from so brightness is the first sun you know the sun right which is lucifer so lucifer tends to be considered the 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 self-worshipping thing that doesn't align and doesn't uniformly harmonize right that we call light good. We should call light bad, perhaps. These are kinds of the questions that the Esopics brought up. And so much of it also was that people could be ascended masters on their own right. You have Aleister Crowley who's saying, hey, everything you've been told is evil might be awesome. You know, and people for the first time being allowed to, to say that in a few hundred years. It's not the first time. You still have... And this is what's funny, like now, so many people think this is the first generation that had thoughts, right? And in terms of the OnlyFans or, or like, you know, uh, twerking or something, like, this is the worst generation ever. As if people didn't know there were donkey shows in Rome or that Babylon was pedophiliac or that, you know, Berlin burned and those fires, like so much of that was child pornography. Like we are repeating loops, you know? So there's a point when hippies cause their kids to react and you get yuppies. We had libertines, which led to Puritans because they were like, wow, there are people having sex in the streets in London. In parks, it's just this crazy debauched Sodom and Gomorrah fest with people getting syphilis and dying at 27, all because there's no rules against it, really, because it was a free democracy, right? They killed the king and they had Cromwell and it was like, a, you know, eventually the, the Protestant Puritans 
created more and more laws through democracy that they begged the king to come back. So like, look, we don't need democracy. Just give us self-determination again. Just like promise we're allowed to do what we want and that you'll enforce that as a dictator. And the king had to leave Amsterdam because he's like, all right, all right. But, you know, this is how these loops happen. So at some point, people were thinking, okay, we have these, we have these rules that we have to follow. They're going to, they're going to like keep us as a society in a norm. And someone comes along and says, hey, those rules are stoplights. And if you had sirens, you could go right through them, you know? And so the, the, the theosophics kind of opened that idea, like you could be a special person. You could have a special reason to break all the rules. And that became like, the, I think the breakdown of society. Also, Baum had so many metaphors like NY and OZ. And if you look at the letters are right next to each other. So New York, you know, N-O and then Y-Z. So New York and Oz are connected on one level through that they're, they're like a shifted reality. But it happens where it's not Kansas City. Kansas City is on top of the Vanadium mines, which the Vanadium's the 72nd element, I think. And it's the one that, is it 72nd or is it 20, oh, 77th or 23rd? It's the 23rd element. 77th is already, sorry. Okay, so the 23rd element. And it is for use in the, the creation naturally of emeralds. So the Emerald City is, you know, created by vanadium, which is, it's also used in Qualcomm's seam MOS chips for cameras. The 23rd, and, 20, it's atomic number is 23. Yeah. Okay, cool. I was like, <laughs> the problem, problem with me, like, it's all, there'll, there'll be so many things in my head at once. I'll be like, wait a second. The 77th element is also important because it's iridium and iridium is like, there's one layer of iridium. The Elvira's hypothesis is that iridium was, you know, deposited by a volcano or from a meteor and it completely created another natural uh, reset. This is, and and this is why I love having you on the show because there are so many things. I feel like, like people listen to these episodes probably multiple times just to follow all the different tangents we go down. But why this is particularly important to me, and I definitely... I want to invite you to maybe join us on this show, but my friend Dave from the Generation Z podcast and I, we do a podcast where we take a look at each element on the periodic table of elements and just like break it down and see what the history is. And so maybe you could join us when we talk about Iridium or Vanadium. I try to get get Ian to come too, but Ian Crossland, because like he loves that stuff. Yeah. That'd be fun to use. Please put us in touch. But yeah, that's a little bit of a, a tangent there, but please, brother. Don't don't be afraid to go down those tangents. This is the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast. We don't need structure. This is pure chaos. Good. I mean, I feel like all this stuff will eventually be real tight, but like it's kind of nice to be able to spider. I'm mean, going to use some more spider web stuff because I saw spider in. It's like going down tangents like spider webs, like that like lead different places. Earlier, I had to answer now for a question you asked earlier. I wanted to redo. So you had talked about creative people and like are they creative like the people that are making this illuminati esoteric propaganda because it's literally just a formula mad libs with satanic symbols no i mean like this at a certain point you have to admit that's all it is it's just a calculus formula with sigils in it but you know think about sir francis bacon and banksy so and i don't know if we've ever talked about this but this is something i, I really want to get people to look into and tell me I'm wrong. Like, please like prove me I'm wrong. But my, I think the weirdest, I put this on Twitter a while ago and I've said this since 2009, but like now I'm taking it seriously enough. I'm like saying it, like, please people prove me wrong. My biggest, weirdest conspiracy theory is that Prince William and Prince Harry together probably are Banksy. And, you know, just sit on that for a second. Banksy, this graffiti artist, you know, 
rich kids. Wait a second. How far away is that really? And now in 2009, I was in Oakland and I saw, you know, during the exit through the gift shop, a shot at where I was living. At one point, there's a scene where they go to the Vulcan. And it was at the same time the Banksy was there. And so I never saw Banksy. And then I was like, wait, he's at our, you know, which was a huge compound in Oakland that's like an art. And the Vulcan's like, it's a pretty important art compound and lots of important people. So like, it makes sense that we could have missed it because it's like an old Wrigley gum factory that was turned into, and he could come through and do stuff and have people that were doing stuff. It's like, okay, are people doing art for him? Because that's also different when you have commissioned art being made for you. And this was like a thing about Shakespeare is that Shakespeare was an actor who could not write. And he was taught to sign a signature. And, you know, you hired a crew, you hired a cast, you hired a cast member to play a crew member because if you're going to get in trouble for writing this stuff and there's all kinds of reasons that it could happen i think people usually say that it was shakespeare was lord uh francis Bacon, but also that there could be other people involved like edward devere the 17th earl of oxford right like he was he was related to the queen there's a there's a whole i think there's movies at this point about this concept that he was a writer and one of the reasons why the stories are based on French and Dutch plays that had made it in, in Scandinavian plays from the 13th century, which also connects to the Arabic thing, because there's Arabs that were coming to the Rus that were connecting. So these stories, why do they have these specific stories that are so important? Well, you know, they mattered to these royals that are bringing them up. How much of Banksy's art is, I mean, who can go to Chernobyl and do graffiti art? And who can do, you know, so I mean, th- beyond speculation though, in 2009, thinking about this, like, you know, at the same time that the reason I originally had this thought, Banksy's there. And then the same weekend, Prince William, I think, is in, is in Oakland or in San Francisco or you know, he's in the area. And I'm like, huh, wouldn't that, and so for whatever reason, I'm like, wouldn't that be the most hysterical thing if they were somehow hanging out here, you know, cause like they're, so he's rich and like, ah, he's young. And like, of course, let it go. A week or two later, it's the queen mother of England's birthday. And the, there's a Montclair Bell article that says, you know, Prince Williams, uh, no, Prince Harry says, I'm Banksy. And I'm like, wait, what? Like why, right after I was thinking this random thought, but so I opened up the article and he says, you know, a lot of people don't know I'm really interested in the arts. And he's there talking at his grandmother, the queen mother's uh, birthday, you know, and she's like 90 or whatever. He's like, you know, people don't know, like, I'm really interested in supporting these projects for the elderly to see art. And I'm interested in art in general and community art projects. And actually, I'm so much into the art. I'm actually Banksy. And everyone laughs and no one ever talks about it again. And I thought that was like so crazy. Like, why would he say that? And then. Is it that funny to anybody? But as time went on, there's more and more evidence that Harry and his brother William were, you know, they have security to keep them wherever they want. They can commission people to do any piece they can. They have, you know, people that will make sure that they're hidden to not embarrass the family names. And then this last week, you know, it started coming up actually more. What, what was it happened? I think it was, you know, Elon Musk said that he was going to consider, he's like, what do you think if I were to become an influencer instead of working? I just fire, I quit my jobs and become just a full-time influencer. As if he's not already. 
Right. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah. You know, he's like shocking people, but that's what Royals do, right? Royals are against working with their hands. Even the joke used to be like even digging or even dentistry, but now it's even typing, typing with your hands. Right. So at a certain point you're still working. So if you can just be this Royal influence upon the world, right? Like then all of a sudden you've achieved greatness. And so that's what, that's what Shakespeare is supposed to do for the royal family. And think about what Shakespeare did. Like it made it so that so much of uh, idiot France practically fell because of the influences of Shakespeare on the court. Like so much of the Jacobin and Freemasonic, you know, revolution was that they were literate. And so they were aware of these metaphors that were told in these stories and you draw a picture. And then the picture reminds you of this play that you saw. The same thing is happening with Banksy, right? Banksy's got this, it, to the extent of Banksy is responsible for Obama being president, you know, to, you know, to the, to the social level that that's true, to the, to the populist level that anyone is elected based on, you know, popularism, it's more that Banksy made the, made it swallowable, that pill. And so much of the art is economic, social classism about, you know, communism, this neo-technocratic communist state you see in like his artwork. So it, it becomes kind of interesting, this like idea that maybe everything that we're seeing that we're told is independent and, you know, self-starter is it like so much of it's not like you can kind of tell the difference when someone has the finances to weld a phone booth, you know, in half without the police stopping him. Like there's, and so there's, there's a number of things like that. I would say with, with storytellers in general right now, like Spider-Man, you know, the movie, like there, how much of that movie, like the, the reason why people are raving about it is because it uses the old symbols and it's like, oh, they understand what these pieces are and what the value is. Is that not what Banksy's doing to our uh, street art culture. So, um, just a thought. Please, somebody tell me I'm wrong. Just wanted to like no, invite I, you to consider it. I think that's fascinating that he was in the same. I mean, you made that connection in a synchronistic way that they were in the same place, same time, and then he makes that statement, which is a little baffling. Doesn't really get any kind of oh, examination. That was, that was the thing I didn't. I didn't. So when Elon Musk said that he was going to consider quitting his job, Harry said right that same week that he respects those who focus on their art instead of their you know work and quit their jobs and focus on their mental health. You know what I mean? So a lot of it's like also could be like this amazing story, but like their mom's murdered and they have like this is the only outlet they have to communicate it. So, I mean, it's kind of interesting too. It's not like to say, oh, well, Banksy's the worst thing ever. It's just like, hey, like, you know, maybe we spot him Batman. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You, their mom is murdered. Are you talking about Diana, Princess Diana? Right, right. Okay. Princess Diana, you know, and the, there's so much to that. Jack the Ripper was probably the brother of the king, George or King George III. Is that right? Or is it? King Edward, it might be King Edward, but there's a whole, the Queen Victoria may have had, you know, relations to this guy who was sick in the head, but he was royal, but he wasn't going to be king, he was for foreign, killing people, there's a whole thing on Jack the Ripper. Anyway, mm. regardless of who he is, the person trying to find him was in Scotland Yard, Spencer, right? So the name of Princess Diana is Diane Spencer. She's the great, great, great of 
the, you know, the Scotland Yard detective for the Jackson Ripper case and her marriage into the royal family is very important. Just a couple connections she has to the, the, the red beard, you know, like the king, the, the giant king, what's his name? The red, you know, Eric the Red or something like that. Mm. So there's, there are, there are royal connections, but in terms of the house of Wilhelm, which is a German Saxon Coburg von Goss family, which, you know, the queen's not even the highest in the royal line. Like accordingly, Andreas Saxon Coburg von Goss, great name, by the way, is, was raised in Louisiana and he's the leading elite in terms of the the royal nobility bloodline but he's not from england there's a whole so england's not the most important thing in the in the entire picture of this either but so spencer diana spencer married in to the family and there was a breakup thing she was dating an iranian persian shah guy and yeah the tunnel is crazy i remember in paris checking out like this crazy stars at all angles of this crazy triangle like this kennedy thing and there's definitely some stuff that happened where they deleted the tapes they made it impossible for people to find so it would be very frustrating for i mean normal people who love like the, the the lower class british really love princess diana so they you know they made this huge media sensation imagine what it would be like to be the son of this lady because they're clearly not going to ever find out what's happening and You'll get killed probably because there's no reason they don't need you necessarily. However, your to kill you is very public. So it's this thing where they, what can they do? But they're being protected and they have the opportunity to anonymously put out some sort of media campaign. That's like the only thing that makes any sense for the royal family to do at this point. And considering how much that they've even stepping out during the Trump administration, Harry saying he's no longer going to be, no, William saying he's, no longer prince abdicating his position that's it, it falls in line with you know his association with what's the name of the dj is it the the guy who wears the helmet the big helmet on his head the a mouse guy dead mouse something like that which connects to everything no, we we're talking about that's before. Right. that is perfect though yeah as that someone can wear the dread pirate robert's helmet but there's there's a name for there was a guy dj goldie or something like that i want to yeah. say and he's, he's associated with, like, there's, I've got plenty of pictures where some for a while they were like, did, did, uh, Banksy reveal himself? And they say it was DJ Goldie. And they have these pictures of this guy and they're like, oh, did he admit that he was Banksy in this moment? But really what it looks like, and I've got all around that area, you've got pictures of him with Prince Harry and Prince William. So clearly Prince Gold, you know, Prince William and Prince Harry are friends with DJ Goldie. He can be part of this art syndicate which is create you know because they have to at some point learn how to make this art and this is the this is the prototypical nft they've created a piece that is put up on a wall and they they can go to all over the world and it's perfect marketing it's real marketing campaign so wow. yeah that's i mean i've never heard that before but it's absolutely fascinating it you know to that point, it reminds me of this kind of local legend or maybe not even a legend really this guy who would bicycle around New Haven with like this mask on it would be a different mask you know every time I saw him at least and he'd be always like blaring EDM music out of these like speakers and it was just like a notorious thing if you were walking around in New Haven at night you might see this guy just like blaring this music and it always struck me like who is this guy and I remember asking somebody who also was familiar with it and they said oh I heard that 
you know, he's this rich kid who, you know, that's all he spends his time doing. You know, that's his art, you know, and it, it just seems like there is that sort of theme with the wealthy to want to express themselves in these strange ways. Who knows what that guy was up to, but it was all around the Yale University campus. I don't know if you're familiar. I know you've oh, been yeah. on that haunt a few times. Man, I wish it seemed to, I wish it was generally as weird as you just described. That would be so much cooler. <laughs> but I mean, in terms of wealthy doing weird stuff, you have Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? So Maslow wrote in anthropology and psychology that there's a pyramid, which is a you know, model people like, I think he's more of a trapezoid. Let's see, can you do the, how do you do the, there you go, a trapezoid, right? Because once you get to the top of the trapezoid, you fall off. You don't end up on the pyramid. The pyramid is one of those, if you're on the trapezoid, you're on an altar. Like you can't quite, you can you can be sacrificed by the pyramid, but it's a little different. But mm. so many people are stuck in this paradigm of, dude, how can these people worry about reptiles running the country when I can't get food, you know, or whatever? Because it's if you're focusing on the bare essential survival, you're still in your reptilian part of your brain, I think is the, at least the metaphor we use. So many people are unable to get out of that, but our genetic conditioning is that we will try to accomplish great things. So you will accomplish feeding yourself. You will accomplish housing yourself. You will accomplish providing for yourself. You will accomplish providing for others. And once you get to a point where you're able to study the Kabbalah, you know, right? Because that's what a lot of it is, is the Kabbalah is to say when you're like 52, 54, you can start doing the Kabbalah because you have a fan of family and your kid's already, you know, past his bar mitzvah, bar mitzvah. So you're able to work on something else, you know, on, on a spiritual uplift and it's a spiritual uplift. Like David Brin talks about uplifting. He has a book about aliens that are uplifting other aliens. And they say you get a hundred thousand years of servitude for the other alien, the way, but they come to earth and they find... We've already uplifted eagles to be our, you know, carrier pigeons, and we've got monkeys that are in space. And so uplifting is something where you can take monkeys and train them how to uh, basket weave, and they're fishing now. We have monkey slaves that are making coconut milk possible for Costco. Not anymore. I think Costco got in trouble for it. But that's even worse because now we have these monkeys that know how to work, and they're out of work. So it starts to see how uplifting is, you know, exciting, but dangerous. And so much of it isn't just monkeys, it's people. So, so many people are uplifted by education that they become insane, you know, and that's a big, they can't work. There's no reason to, you can't psychologically process like that. It's like George Costanza and, you know, Seinfeld, like, I can't, you want me to have, you know, lift boxes? I'm college educated. So many people are unable to process the humility of that. And also then to put themselves back in the center, you know, is it necessary? Because you're like, wow, there are machines that can run this and they can run this whole society. Like, isn't work, you know, on, on a wage slavery, you know, perspective, isn't work wrong? You know, like, oh, it's not just sex work, just in general. Like if you have to work, isn't that taking away from you focusing on, you know, what you, you know, care about, but then what do you get? <laughs> you get mass accordion writers, you know, in Santa Cruz or in, in, in Norwalk and in uh, Bridgeport and New Haven. Like New Haven's definitely a place for sleep or swim too. Like either you handle the winter or you don't, but once you do, like it's pretty comfortable. So people will start to worry about things that, that don't really matter. I think that actually relates kind of to the Epstein thing you know i was thinking not that i really want to dive too deep into like because it's like the damage is done the black book is burned we're not going to hear anything and like you know she's probably i bet you a dogecoin or two that she'll get off like but 
more importantly, like what was, what was Glenn's vision, right? Cause like Robert Maxwell, her dad, who's like stolen all this money from, and I have a series, if you haven't seen my Echo the Dolphin series, like everyone's like Maxwell, Epstein and Echo the Dolphin. Mm, like, I don't think, I, I don't think there's anyone else who's bothered to connect Echo the Dolphin and Sega Genesis to the FC crisis, but it's real. There's a lot to it. The Terra Mars project that Glenn Maxwell was like, this is what I want to do. You know, if there's anything that you're going to help me do. It's going to be to start this United Nations approved certified organization that makes it possible for corporations to go to common waters and mine and build super cities underwater. And there's so much of Terra Mars is that there are people are, if you go on Google Maps, you start already finding these um, deep drill silos, which are owned by these Swiss, uh, you know, volcanic submarine mining companies. They're getting, you know, crazy hundreds of trillions of dollar deals because they're getting gold and, you know, energy and things that they're bringing back from underwater from places where it's not owned by the Chinese yet because they haven't built islands above it. And this is another thing. People are building, you know, like that silo now is an island because the sand is being clumped up and they can pour out this, you know, concrete. And there's like, con there's concrete uh, being created. So that literally they can make a new land. And then from there you say, well, hundred miles, according to the United Nations and the you know, piracy laws, you know, six, the oldest laws we have, which is why intellectual property, intellectual property, piracy, right? Because what do we agree on internationally? There's an anarchy. We, we, every state doesn't really believe the UN's above them. The ICC doesn't really work. We believe in piracy. There's this idea that there's my state, there's your state. You know, and in between there's chaos and in that anarchy, there are pirates. And so being able to cross these waters requires diplomacy between seas so that they can guard certain areas of water so they can make traders. And this is, this is what led to piracy on the internet. They're saying, well, intellectual property is the same thing as uh, real property, right? So what we call that is piracy. So it's a very important aspect to the, you know, international political science anarchy that we live in. No one can say that they're at the top, like this, this is the idea of a new world order. It's still the reason they have to say it's new because the old one has been broken down. There's enough control because of the banks, but we don't have open borders yet to the level that like the connection between open borders and, and random vaccine checks is that it's a one world government. It's folding away the borders between states and it's saying the new checkpoint is internal. It's like inside of yourself, are you transporting data, DNA that should not be transported? And so we're at a point now where the, the elite have decided, like the thing that they have to do is they have to save the earth by pounding it into their own vision. And that that's the most dangerous place to be. Now, What's the joke usually? Like if you gave AIDS to Bill Gates, he would cure it right away. You start to look into that and you see, well, hey, how many people are Iron Man? You know, like Tony Stark has this thing on his chest and he casts to replace it every 72 hours. This is not a made up story. This is very, very common. There are people that are told that they've stepped too far out of line and they have to replace when they wake up after that, this yellow thing attached to their chest every 72 hours. Now we're going to have AIDS, a like monthly subscription plans. You have an autoimmune disorder because of some sort of viral infection. We've tested the market of Africa. We can do this to the rest of the world. A whole world can month to month die if they don't pay to live. And that's a very scary place to be. I think that's exactly what my biggest fear was when this whole thing came to fruition. Because, I mean, people who maybe are listening for the first time or haven't listened to the show before. I mean, we've been 
you know, we're a new podcast. We've only been around since COVID's been a thing, but I was, you know, way ahead of the game when it came to a lot of this stuff, not to toot my own horn, but it definitely feels like that's exactly what they wanted to do from the get-go is to disinfect everything, weaken our immune system. And when I say disinfect, I hope people see, I got to do the air quotes because it's really, you know, it's, it's so inaccurate. You know, when you look at a holistic worldview and how these different bacteria really are essential to our immune system's health to go and disinfect everything to me felt like, Oh, okay. They're priming us for something. And then sure enough, this whole thing comes around. It's a hypochondriac's uh, worst nightmare, or maybe even their their biggest wet dream. You know, I don't know. I tend to, you know, just be, you know, comfortable in the mud. But we've talked to Andrew Wakefield. We've got, you know, we've gotten down on the COVID subject plenty of times. I definitely, you know, on the point of the table of elements. And, you know, you're talking about the Maxwell case. When I was talking with Nick Hinton, a week or so ago, he mentioned this like chip that they're going to be putting inside of us, you know, and, and it runs on lithium, you know, and we were talking about that in an episode of the Elemental Philosophy Forum. I hope I'm not confusing them, but either way, listen to those episodes if you haven't already. And we we're talking about those lithium mark of the beast type chips that they're going to be putting inside of people it just it it's this technocratic transhumanist future that we're well, heading so many people so many people thought you know because like when i was young i didn't study nanotech until i was what like 19 so i kind of thought about viruses more i was interested in adenovirals so my first study was in slab biocurious in san francisco and san jose and we studied gen genomics for a program called twist genome compiler sorry genome compiler which now is owned by twist by bioscience and they make you know twist think about what it means but in terms of CRISPR and what we were trying to do, like my goals when i was young like when i was young was very strange i wanted to make people have blue hair i figured you know we'll make the immortality serum and everything else but if you're gonna live to be you know as old as you want and look young forever you might as well look the way you want it. and if you want to have blue hair why are you dying it so this is so early on before I started learning the ethics of adenovirals and what it's doing and what transhumanism is for and like how much further it's going to go. But I got, I got more into graphene. So the thing is when you say like, oh, we'll have chips in them. I was thinking in people used to say, oh, you, you know, if it's, you put it in the baby and you put it in the hand or the forehead because they will grow the bone around the chip and you won't be able to get it out. But nowadays we're not even talking about big old chips, you know, we're talking about graphene. So we're talking about putting graphene into the vaccines, which is laced in your blood. There's the patent 2020 is a 666 Microsoft patent, which is to put radio controlled graphene in your blood that then can register whether you're doing what you ought to be or not and reward you accordingly. So giving you cryptocurrency and, but they're already doing, uh, and I remember Stanford doctors working on this back in 2009 and like reuptake inhibitors and agonists in graphene so that it would open up and it will distribute on a time to release drug. So you can have medicine, antibiotics or opioids or, you know, nootropics. Like you'd have whatever you wanted released. This would be, you know, probably useful for medicine, but I started seeing it mentioned last month, people talking about it more and 
doctors that are younger and they're saying things like, oh, well, we'll use this for imagine workers at Amazon, you know, being given this drug reuptake, you know, according to radio schedule. And another thing to remember, like, so lithium power, lithium is a salt. You have salt in your blood. There's a lot of, you can continue to control society through salt the way we did in ancient Africa and Russia, right? Salt was the uh, preservative, but also it increased blood pressure. And we've been told that salt is so bad for us, but so many people are falling into hypertension this generation. And that's, and it was those super low blood pressure is not good either. Like we sit erectile dysfunction and, you know, all kinds of like brain problems, or you can live a long time in a stagnated state that way. So there's like reasons why it's beneficial as a worker, but it's definitely not the necessary like best answer either. And we're finding that natural ionized and um, iodinized salts are good for you. The, 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 the way that we used to get salt was a very common part of our diet and it's missing. We have salt deficiencies now. So but the, the thing in the Soviet Union were the, they had these surveillance systems that were non-powered or rather they did not have onboard power. And so when someone came into a room and tried to look for microphones, they couldn't find it. For, it wouldn't be on unless it heard sound. And the, the energy would come from other ambient sources, like kind of Tesla-esque, but much more rudimentary. This is exactly the same technology, though, that goes into NFC chips. And in, I think, what's the name? Is that, What's the first one that was so much more popular in the late 90s, early 2000s, the chip and everything? You know what I'm talking about? The chip. Oh. It's like a paper-sized chip. RFID, sorry, radio frequency identification. So the way RFID will work and the way NFC works, you know, there's no energy in this graphing printed piece of paper, but you would go through a checkpoint of some kind. So you go through an electric door when you walk out of a store, you know what I mean? It says, who are you? Right. And then from and then the chip then bounces the signal back. It, it, it prints onto the chip that's been asked by this IP address, this store, who it is. And then it reflects back. It's like, well, this is the data I have. This is who I am. This is where I come from. I'm a Gillette razor blade. And I come from this factory. I was built nine months ago. You know, like I have an expiration date. And I've been through these many checkpoints. These are the checkpoints I went through before. So this chip you look for, you know, you scan it with it, go through your airport. There's nothing to scan. There's no electricity. There's no metal, whatever, but it can still be used. It can, it's magnetic and it can still be used to write and rewrite. And when something with energy is able to paint and bounce it back. So this is what our body is going to do. It's going to power this system, very matrix, right? Like these computers would be inside of us. And then what it'll be used for likely will be to connect us to an internet that will either give us drugs or give us information or take our information and send it to someone else. Imagine a you know future cybernetic augmentation where it becomes an employment necessity, you know, for underclass people like who are treated like utilities. And you have a servant who acts like a battery bank, you know, and you have a number of servants who act as battery banks. You might have a thousand people that are drones and you use them to process and work, you know, like let's say you have to go to some other country, you use someone else's body to, to operate that task, or you have to be in three places at once because you're, you know, super wealthy. So, so many people will be trading away their time, putting themselves into banks, you know, while this is existing. And then simultaneously, we're talking early about Neuralink. I mean, Neuralink's first goal is to um, help the disabled, but very quickly, criminology is becoming interesting because this idea that we are putting people in a prison 
and we have to define a prison, but like what a prison seems to be now is you know, at, at most inert, let's say a waste of time and at, at, at less, at, at more, at more consequentially, it is a torture place that is educating people to become sadistic and criminals. And you have to look both directions. One is psychologically making people, like raping people is bad, right? And putting them in prison isn't making them better people. And, you know, big deal because you can't make everyone a better person. But Neuralink can. If you can disable people from committing crimes, it's just literally just their body shuts down when they have a negative thought crime. That That's going to be pretty popular as a solution for certain things. And if you can say, okay, this person committed these horrible atrocities we want to just you know put them in life in prison or you know execute them but we're trying to get rid of execution as a as a goal so you start to see more and more life in prison doesn't seem to make sense what if we take their personality and we give them another one we can make them like to clean up trash on the highway we can make them want to benefit society and a big thing about prison you know painting license plates is benefiting society so taking people that have harmed society and repaying the debt to society. Criminologists love this idea. And it's not just for life sentences. What if you, you know, got six years <laughs> and for six years, you're a different person or you, you're the same person, but you love cleaning the highway, you know, or whatever it is. You love picking up trash, you love painting license plates, you love doing community service. You participate. Maybe it's more, maybe it's like they can train you. So it doesn't have to be that you just love the highway cleaning. It might be that you love doing, you know, math, for a radio, a satellite, and you're living in this, the, the, the kinds of levels of what you could be doing could be, wow, I mean, like, I'm contributing to society in ways I never could. And then people will beg, probably, that, that they could have this even without committing crimes. Because why, why is it that only the handicapped are given the opportunity to walk again? Why is it that the criminals are rewarded with a better life? There will be transhumanists that will start to emerge from their recreational transhumanism will have stacks. And so and you just think like if you went to school and you were not like me, I don't know, <laughs> and you were quiet in class, I guess I'm saying, and you were yourself, how much of that are you sure really happened to you? Like if you're quiet in class, couldn't that have happened to anybody? And so, so many of your memories could be stacked with generative Blade Runner dreams of electric sheep between the classrooms to justify why you have nuclear physics training. But you will be seeing more and more people with universal stacks where it's like, yeah, I had that, you know, experience of the, the prestigious student in 136D and philosophy 101 and so and math. And science will become a, an acquirable skill that will be, on one hand, you'll have some free opportunities, but more and more you'll see special programs, which are owned proprietary programs for memories. And people will start to, you know, like you'll have to work for Lockheed or LaRoche or, you know, um, Raytheon in order to get the calculus stack that you want. Whereas the 20 year old, you know, like let's say you go to the New Year's, New Year's YouTube and you can watch what normal everyone in the street saw versus the Anderson Cooper experience where you get to be him and go to hang out with his boyfriend and have champagne. So people will pay extra to have these more prestigious and unique memories, which will be hard to generate naturally because you'll be, you know, 
economically and legislatively prohibited from doing so much other than what you were allowed to do. And simultaneously, you're looking at this, you know, what's that movie, Nick of Time or like Just in Time, the movie with Justin Timberlake, where they have a vaccine that keeps them young forever, but it's up to the minute, not like monthly. If your minutes run out, you just die of an autoimmune infection in like 60 seconds. So you'll start to see more and more like, wow, we can extend telomeres. We, but who are we? And like, who are they? And who's controlling this technology? This is the thing that's so terrifying about the adenoviral medicine and the, the changing of government's hands right now. If we're moving towards this open border society, we're starting to say that these states don't have control over their borders. It means that they're not states. It leads to the entire international system being one state. And, you know, BLM, and I have to always like remember Bureau of Land Management, because there's apparently more and more people only know about the other one, but Bureau of Land Management matters, you know, because in the United States, 52% of Kansas now belongs to BLM. California lost 200 miles of coastline. Like so much of the United States is starting to feed itself into these pockets of Bureau of Land Management control, which are where Native Americans can have casinos, right? What that means is you have a Napoleonic law with a dictatorship and a chieftain, which is above the democracy, above the constitution, above the law, and they're you know, a separate and apart from it. So they're able to have a Napoleonic dictatorships that are run by, you know, Burning Man is on a BLM reservation, right? So there's more and more you'll start to see this post-Indigenous reservation plan then what it's going to do to your uh, self-determination, to your you know, your human rights, which are you know more and more, you, you only have this Hobbesian right to try to not submit to the system. But in exchange for that, all they're doing is the ancient Apache and um, the, see, the Native American Indian Confederacy laws, they didn't have prisons for the ancient Native Americans. They would just separate you from society. You couldn't interact with the tribe anymore. And this is what Revelation says also, that you'll not be able to buy or sell anything if you don't have the mark. Wow. Yeah, man. Jeez, so much. I had like six questions, but then as the details keep coming, I, I lose them. Oh my gosh, but, I'm sorry. No, it's I okay. Should, I, I, I should be like it. making, I should be making notes and letting you raise hands. Um, no, it's all right. That's what the, that's what the new extended outro and intro is going to be about where I organize my mind and then maybe get some questions together for the next time you're gracious enough to join me on the show. But, uh, but I want to hit the brakes in and reverse back to theosophy because I feel like we, we didn't give it a really like what, I don't know what it deserves and on the point of it kind of informing the UN theosophy was founded in New York City where the UN has their headquarters right and not only that but theosophy connects to the Wizard of Oz which is a very very interesting movie but even more interesting the book and I just found out you know through you just now that the emerald city is an allusion to all this vanadium underneath kansas which now we're finding out is 52 percent of it is owned by blm which i don't find that you know very good i geez i mean it's just feels like you took me into a philip k dick nightmare here brother and not no <laughs> offense to you because i i love all the information you have to share but in my own mind, I'm like, well, geez, where am I going to go? What am I going to do? Because, I mean, I'm young. I got a lot uh, ahead of me. And, you know, 
that also brings to mind this idea that when you're 52, you're, you're, you're allowed to get into all this spiritual stuff. I wish someone told me that at 16 when I was getting into all of it, cause I've had, you know, 11 years of experience diving into all this stuff and I'm glad I didn't wait till I was 52. I'll just say that, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot, but let's go back to theosophy. Well, so on, on, on both levels, same. And so the thing about theosophy in terms of like the Kabbalah or being old enough, I used to think, wow, you know, especially with drugs now, because you've researched chemicals that can open all these doors inside yourself, doors of perception. Like we don't have to wait till we're Kundalini experts that have achieved bhakti and have, uh, you know, et cetera. So wait, why would you wait till you're old and your body's frail in order to go through these crazy challenges? Well, you know, the ignorance of use, because when you're old, A, your mind isn't your body necessarily. Your body matters. You have to take care of your body. You'll see like 90 year old men that look healthy and women that are, you know, champions as well, despite being small and et cetera. But their mind matters. And so a child's mind is not as strong as an adult's mind for so many reasons. Plastic, it's designed to be plastic for certain kinds of flexibility that you need to survive these crazy circumstances to establish in your lifetime sort of an understanding of of nature the way it is now because it will change and so you have to deal with these these concepts simultaneously you know like connecticut and maryland uh is it maryland connecticut or massachusetts and connecticut you at the coast you have the blue blood crabs and so something that comes up in theosophy is the color blue the, the idea that blue didn't exist is when the i forget if it's the bluebird right i think is in the lord of the uh, lord of the rings <laughs> in the wizard of oz you, you he's referring to the story of this bluebird because at one point there wasn't a color and all of a sudden the shift it, you can see the color but green's so important and the original color for egyptian blue was green was all of these stories about not being able to see blue that homer couldn't see blue he describes the oceans in the odyssey as wine colored the sky as honey the grass is green but no blue you, you, ancient flags you've red green yellow no blue so blue starts to emerge as this like wow all of a sudden blue everyone and who's using blue freemasons and jacobins and eventually it becomes a pirating you know, the, the american flag is this a grid of like we've taken over and we've recolonized and we've reset and we're combing the earth and building super cities with super strip malls you know we're just, like that that has a lot to do with the sterilization color of blue the un's color is blue you know so blue is kind of a dangerous uh thing but in the original Bolaski story no one could see it and all of a sudden the the invocation of this ritual made it possible for seeing things that were already there that are beyond the veil and the blue blood crab right simultaneously theosophics involved with the methuselah foundation which is like an immortality organization they're always studying the blue blood crabs, the elite blue blood royals. Like, yeah, they're eating blue blood crab blood. They, this is another, I think Mark Twain, you can definitely connect to this because he has the blue blood crabs, which ends up becoming the most valuable crabs, like $100,000 for a liter of their blood. And now they're making synthetic adrenochrome from blue blood crabs. One of the reasons their blood is, well, the main reason that their blood is blue is because it's not iron-based. We have this seawater that's going through our body. And it's got iron, which is rusting, and it's causing this oxygenation to turn red. When copper turns oxygenated, it turns blue. When you're green, you know, and you start to see the green roofs on the copper roofs of Austria, 
because they get oxygen. When you look at the Eiffel Tower, it's come more, if you, the bronze is turning into a green, and those things cleaned. If you look at the Statue of Liberty, this bronze, you know, copper statue, the bronze statue is turned oxid, ox copper, you know, that green, you know, bluish green cult color that's, that's on the outside. So the, the value to that is that copper can hold oxygen for longer before it oxygenates and dies. And this is kind of this weird omnivores dilemma kind of scenario where plants are farming animals, humans, because we are consuming the oxygen, but we're also breaking down because of the oxygen, you know, instead of just hydrogen. And we end up being digested by the plants, you know, so there's, there's this give and take. The Druids talked about that relationship as well. But if you start to switch to different kinds of minerals, the blood of the crab can let them breathe for hours. And if humans used copper-based blood, the oxygen that was in our system would last instead for seconds, for minutes to hours. As time goes on, we're going to see more and more effort to push towards titanium nano blood, which will then imagine you can, you know, your heart stops beating and then for weeks, you don't need to breathe. You go to the doctor, you know, when there's time, you know, in a couple of days and they, they re-up you with a new, they, they cycle your blood and they turn you back on they replace your heart with something. But the oxygen would not be that you wouldn't just suffocate after a few minutes or seconds, you would be able to handle days without reuptake. So the idea also of immortality of not breaking down, you probably live a lot longer if you didn't have iron-based blood. So the, the theosophics have talked about all these concepts of like what makes up nature. Well, it's often a Vedic kind of concept. Like you will have the, you know, the light, you have the water, you have this one, the elements that we're talking about in their atomic mass are broken down into this like earth, water, wind, fire, the charm TV series. And that, that allows for the elements to represent their effects on wood is, you know, the biology on a rock, you know, so the minerals are then becoming biology. So there's a, there's also a connection between geology and biology through new sphere, you know, this idea of the consciousness that really the plasmoidal consciousness that's being arranged, that still can survive regardless of the body. But theosophism in general, it was like trying to raise ascended masters and build a world government and say that we can, you know, these are the people that were really obsessed with Krishnamurti. They said, hey, this kid, there's a great Indiana Jones, actually, the young Indiana Jones series where he meets and plays soccer and cricket with Krishnamurti because he's like a young kid in India and he meets like with theosophics. It's like a whole, I think it's like a fourth episode of the Indiana Jones. But for like an hour and a half, you know, he's playing, or it's an hour, he's playing with the Theosophics and they're telling everybody, you know, this is the new Jesus Christ. This is the new Messiah, Krishna Murray. And Krishna Murray, a real guy who's his kid, it's like, wow, that's awesome. But no, I know I'm not your whatever you want me to be. I'm my son. So Christian Murray is actually pretty bad because he walks away from the expectations of the Theosophic Society. However, like they, there, there are things about them, which for the most part, they're focusing on trying to be righteous, but you also have to see like the road to hell is paying with good intentions. So, so much of the theosophics were, you know, Venice city, they're like, Hey, we can open Freemasonry up to women, you know, or we can allow for different kinds of interpretive understandings of things that only the Jesuits were allowed to study before. Let's elevate Freemasonry to the level of the Jesuits again, because there should be 
a more intellectual, horizontalist group, something that's not run by the same kind of hierarchy and allows for the dissemination of this information. So, so much of it was like getting these books out to the public and like Alison Foster Bailey also started, they were, well, I don't know if they started or if they were just interacting with Blavatsky's Lucis Trust interacted with the Order of the Golden Dawn, right? Or the Tibetan Grand Lodge. And the Tibetan Grand Lodge was Blavatsky's association to Aleister Crowley. And also what Edmondson, John Edmondson was involved with. And he was a taxidermist from Guyana who lived right next door to. And so Darwin did his trip literally around maybe like six months or at the same time. Like started very quickly, maybe six weeks after Blavatsky started her boat ride. Darwin was on his boat ride. So whether or not they were at the same time together. Together, they were like shifts in the night. And the amount of information that goes one direction to the other, it's like clearly they're connected, but it looks more like Edmondson told Darwin and Blavatsky important things about the evolution of species because he'd been all over the world and seen these things, which led to Darwin looking into them. And Blavatsky wanted to see them as well, but she also had her own theories. So the flow of information goes more from Blavatsky to Darwin than Darwin to Blavatsky. That is to say, Darwin is more influenced by the theosophic ideas within theosophies is influenced by Darwin. But they're they're simultaneous and they're definitely synchronistic. So at the time, so many people thought, hey, there are 13 kinds of hominids that have intermingled and they're, they're slightly different, but they're clearly related, but they have different shapes, skulls and this and that. And that, then Bilbao is like, that's racist. In fact, you know, Darwin too, these people are all one race. And we started saying all, all humans are one race. That's no longer completely feasible. Like we know too much now about hominids and we're back to where we started, but we're maybe better off because we have an answer for why we could mix because so many species like you take a horse and you take a donkey, they make a mule and sterilize because the promoter sequences don't cross. And so it cannot fully ex explain itself, you know, the DNA from one animal to the other to create a uh, perfect animal. Whereas humans can do it. Like you can take a Neanderthal and a Homo sapien and clearly we have people now and you can take Floriensis and Denisovan and you have people in another part of the world and then they've interacted and they've hybridized. So there's something where we have the same exo drivers. We have the same DNA evidence. So this is something that was an argument at this time. How can this be if we also are so different? Blavatsky was saying, well, then how about we are collectively today, all one you know, and we'll call it a race because it's better than ethnicity. It's like we're going towards a thing. And th there are five root races because there were five resets, five major extinctions. There's Lemuria and it's an into Africa theory. But in general, it's pretty similar because the thing that we call humans today starts in Africa, even though something that was before that came into Africa, before when there's a flood, a major deluge, which everybody has a story about the Akan in Africa, the uh, Berbers, the Semitics, the Sumerians, everyone had Chinese, everyone has Native Americans, everyone has a giant flood. So there is that, but this idea that then there's an emerging race right now where all the hybridization and the collective consciousness is allowing us to evolve into this new race, which will come from Baja, California or Southern California. Great. Good job, Blavatsky, for that. It's hilarious. Basically means that we get to, I get to be the green power ranger like in the new future race. But this is what, you know, they, this is what led to science today. And now we're going back and saying, wait a second, none of this is based on science. 
all of this is based on Blavatsky. In fact, the parts that are scientific are, you know, John Edmondson, he, he was so ignored from history. Like everyone knows Darwin. They don't know that he got his theories from Edmondson, maybe because he's black. I don't know what the, I don't know why people don't know who Edmondson is, but it's, it's crazy because now we're going back and we're reanalyzing everything and say, hey, both are true. You know, like these hominids make up a coherency, but they also matter and where they come from matters. And the, the, the evolution of man is different and in woman is different in different places. So that's something that also we have giant humans, tiny humans. And these kinds of things are something that you don't, and they're dismissed because difference is considered a problem. But it's not racism at that point. At this point, it's just fascination with the human experience. So. Wow. Yes. And I couldn't have uh, expected that, but it's exactly what I needed because I've always, you know, I have The Secret Doctrine. I have another book by Blavatsky that's over there somewhere. And, you know, I've looked at the theosophical stuff and I've never heard someone explain it quite like that and i appreciate you doing that here on the show because you know that's a touchy subject for sure but it's also one that is incredibly esoteric and connects to so many different concepts and even down to you pointing out the blood the blue bloods here in you know massachusetts and connecticut two of the wealthiest states in the country you know and there is a lot of established families. And then within that, there are very, you know, extreme cases of poverty too, right? There's a huge, you know, disparity, but it is interesting, like the, the crustaceans, because for thousands of years, people have come to this part of the world, even from as far as the Great Lakes to, you know, feast on the, all the shellfish and oyster. I mean, the town I live in even has an oyster festival every year, right? So there's all sorts of connections to that. I think one time, yeah, on the show, Ron was talking about Ron, my buddy, Ron from new England, shout out to the wicked planet podcast. He was bringing up how oysters are being used now to possibly filter out some really nasty toxins that have gotten into, you know, marshlands and different waterways all over the world. Yeah, actually, oysters are being used. I mean, it's weird how much you can use in YouTube for things. They use ants to find diamonds because they'll break up all the ground and they won't break up the diamond. They'll just pick it up because it's so like making it with a thousand times their weight and they'll carry them out. And they've always used pigs for dialysis, for cleaning the kidneys. But they started looking into radiation cleaning and China has been doing this for decades. And so this is actually where a lot of our research comes from. They're like, hey, Look what happened here. You know, because so much of these, and I, I, the way I found it, I had a friend living in China for a while who had these maps of the nuclear toxicity ref, refineries, or what do you call it? There's a word for that. Where they Refer process the nuclear waste? Yeah, it's a nature restorative oh. zones. But what it is is, so they'll so rice will grow in an area, and then they'll dump all the nuclear waste there. Mm. And according to Codex Alimentarius, humans are great for digesting radiation, right? So putting the and but also a couple of generations later, like if you have if you feed it to livestock through rice, you know, so you've got three generations between the radiation, it's it's even easier to digest. So. It's a great way to get rid of radiation. And, you know, just we 
I noticed this a lot when I was in South America. Cause I was like, wow, South America is crazy. There are these elite author Plutarchy autocrats that run society in Argentina and Peru, like Peru is nuts. You've got slaves for some people in Peru, you know, these elite families that have made it and other people don't. And then you go to Bolivia and you see people can't buy quinoa. They can't even eat their own quinoa that they're growing because they have to sell it. And then they buy this arsenic laden rice. And if I'm in a store, I see that there's six shelves. These people are like short, let's see four shelves. The sixth shelf has at the very top, slightly above my head, there's rice that is healthy. It's, it's organic-ish essentially. And then down the way, you start seeing like the cheapest four times the price. But down the way you have cheap rice, which is from China and it's brought to South America. And it's, it's from these parts of China, it says even on the bags sometimes, you know, not always though, because they don't have to, but it will say it comes from this province of this region. You're like, wow, look that up. What do they do there? Oh, well, they produce some of the gnarliest and so lithium deposits, which are making a possible rain in some places and other places where the nuclear waste is, or the, the metals, you know, from building uh, rockets or cars or, you know, because consumerism is another major besides the military industrial complex is the late stage consumerist economy. This kind of processes is causing toxicity to end up in nature. So the best way is to have something pull it out. Now, you take kale and kale will break up microbes and it'll break up minerals and it will take, you know, zinc and calcium and iron. And you can digest iron a lot easier through kale than you can just eating a bar, eating a sword, you know? So it's very useful, but at the same time, you can take plutonium or other kinds of heavy metals and it makes it really difficult on your digestive system. It seems like wow. most people agree that radiation is bad for you. There are some people that think that there's a lot of benefits to radiation, but it seems to me that there's an interesting correlation between the Van Allen belt and hydrogen. And there's the lightest, you know, like hydrogen is very light. It's like arguing the light, arguing that point because most people would agree, but I'm sure someone would say it's not. It's <laughs> just something like more alchemical than hydrogen. But if hydrogen is the lightest and it is at the top, it stands for reason that the densest things below it, right? If you took water and you had something separated or densities of water, you, it, things don't just salute a lot of the time. They, they meet into levels. And you look at the submarine volcano reserves that are being mined by uh, Terra Mars like programs that were involved in the Maxwell style, you know, submarine volcano mining programs, these different companies are doing now, like Raytheon's involved and, you know, these, these volcanoes are finding natural deposits of uranium and naturally occurring plutonium, which is supposed to not be possible. But if you think about it, of course it's possible. It's just not logical, but a volcano can take uranium and it can re can refine it through minerals. And it, it, it's theoretically if all the right things are in the right place. And there's, there are, there are reasons why it stands to reason why the atomic mass would cause flumes to jet out and create these volcanic reservoirs of pressure, which then would release you into heavy stone that has been oversaturated with different materials, including water or, or, you know, radioactive materials, but you could produce something that we consider to be completely synthetic like plutonium. So anyway, this idea of there being completely dense materials at the base and extremely light materials at the top. And this is interesting because it, it says a lot more about gravity and about density than we've ever realized either. But it's also something that the Theosophists talk about because they always say, hey, there are flying things. You know, they use the balloon as examples because they say like at one point the Silk Road was mainly 
ferried by silk balloons. You know, there were these, these airships that were flying overhead. And the, they're all, you know, like there are stories of dragons. Peruvians have stories of airships. Egyptians have stories of airships. You know, everyone everyone has stories of these, you know, not just Vahanas. To bring back ones. the Wizard of Oz, they talk about them in the Wizard of Oz building an how airship. Does he, how does he get there and how does he leave, right? So, I mean, there's, there's, yeah, the airship is a really, a really huge metaphor there. I've been wanting to, you know, the Matrix is coming. Yeah, everyone wants to see the new Matrix 4. It's, I think it's going to be, I want to be pleasantly surprised, but from what I've heard, it sounds like it's going to be a, a sardonic satire, you know, on the Matrix, mm. which is fine, but it's not going to be, what we need is the Wizard of Oz, because like what we need is the 1899 Matrix. We need the Matrix back then because you look at Red Dead Redemption, right? And these games show like they had trolleys. Like you look at Minneapolis and they had electric trolleys in Connecticut, you look at New Orleans. And in the 1800s, 1812s, you know, period, you've got places where there's electric trolley and you've got the pan telegram machine, which is people sending images back and forth. So electricity, public transportation, instantaneous global communication, all these things that we think of as like really modern things they had centuries ago. So the matrix makes just as much sense to be a steampunk era. And I think that, you know, like I was like, wait, we really need that word. And then I remembered, oh yeah, 20 bucks. There's 20 books about the wizard of Oz. Actually, have you ever read it? So you haven't read the, have you seen like you, the second book is Ozma of Oz. Do you know what that's about? Tell me. I, I looked into it just briefly, like in a- It's like, super Yeah. It's super theosophic. So basically, <laughs> this is the gnarliest Wizard of Oz book. I remember like major head, you know- Oh, wait, no, no, no. So, all right. So I did begin to listen to it. It's the main character is a boy who lives with a witch, right? And Which having, wouldn't that be great if like the introduction was true? So here's, I don't, should I not spoil it? I feel like I have to. It's like hundreds, hundred years oh, ago where I had to give spoilers. But he yeah. makes like a Frankenstein type thing, right? He, he like makes yeah. like basically a, a what he, are they called? He takes, he, take, well, he, he takes it. Yeah. He, he, he animates the corpse of a dead moose and he also animates Jack uh, right. Skellington, basically the pumpkin head, Jack Pumpkinhead, And this jack-o'-lantern is originally supposed to scare this witch, but the witch has the homunculus magic and this alchemical, she's stolen some of the philosopher's stone. He's po I think she poisoned or put to sleep this philosopher and took his philosopher's stone. And she's been using this, and this is Mumby. And she, she cuts off people's heads and wears them. Like she likes us to wear other women's heads. So it's, you know, it's terrifying. Very dark book. However, <laughs> yeah, but however, this kid doesn't know where he comes from. He's an orphan. It's horrible. He has to go find this princess exactly his same age named Ozma. And so as the story progresses, you know, and there's a lot of things that happen that are eh, like, it's, it's, there's so much going on. Like Baron was really into the women's rights movement. So there's like a, a woman's army in the book as well that's taking over Oz because Oz is tired and the patriarchy is falling apart. It's like, it's a really fascinating book, but it connects to the Matrix. <laughs> this blows my mind. I hadn't thought about this until just now. But um, basically when he gets to the Emerald City and he finds out that Ozma is him, that Mumra, the Mumbi, and okay, Mumra is the 
Thundercats, evil guy. Mung relates to Mott and has to do with evil or dead. But Ra is, in Hebrew, means bad. It means evil. It's the sun god. And so it's very interesting that today, even in Hebrew, it means evil. But so this 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 dark evil, Mumbi, she's she ends up, she's been in charge of watching over this child somehow who's been disguised. And he's not even aware that he is this woman in a man's body. And so she has to go through a ritual to become himself or herself. And then he comes out and he is Ozma, the princess. She is Ozma, the princess. And so it's, it's, and this is like what, 1906, 1908? It's like, I forget. It's right after the San Francisco earthquake. And it's a really weird time to be writing a child's transgender sci-fi fantasy. But it, 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 it's the most popular book. So, and it has like 20 more. So in a lot of ways though, you know, the Matrix is written by the Wachowski brothers that became the Wachowski siblings and then the Wachowski sisters after Lana had her sex change and then the other. So both of the brothers became, or, or always were sisters. And so that's interesting. It's not very common, I think. Maybe it's gonna be, but that two siblings, the whole of the family, transgender, you know, or were transgender, you know. So that's that's kind of interesting. But it's also it's funny that there's this idea in theosophic studies, which clearly they're interested in about the masculine and the feminine, the quantum psychology of the being made up of the characters you represent, right? Like Seinfeld is, and Larry David is all of the characters in Seinfeld. Like he's the the Tyler Durden that is Jerry Seinfeld. He is the bald schmuck that is Costanza. Like he is the, you know, out of control id that is the Kramer. Like he is the receptivity that is Elaine. Like these are not characters. These are character traits of a being. You know, and so Wizard of Oz does this as well. It says, hey, you're not supposed to try to be like one character in the office. You're supposed to recognize how the office is representing your mental breakdown. You are not supposed to be a boy or a girl. You are like all of the dynamic and you are representing through whichever part you were less of because you can't see it. So you're being now the boy for this lifetime. So theosophics really focus on that spiritual growth as well. Beautiful. I'm glad we were able to come back to that. And yeah, I did begin to listen to that second book so it kind of flashed back to me as you started to get into it but yeah i definitely think the wizard of oz deserves a, a whole episode in itself but you know it's a shame we didn't get too much into tartaria and we're coming to a, a close here but i definitely think there's going to be another conversation coming up soon at some point in time maybe we can get you on my buddy uh rising from the ashes podcast they did a whole month of tartaria podcast i know they'd love to get in touch with you that'd be awesome but either way this has been fantastic dude tell everybody you know where they can follow up with you and what you uh, have in the works if you got anything new coming up or anything like that let us know yeah man thanks and you know like there's plenty of Tartaria videos and so check out my channel on right. YouTube for or Odyssey for Exertus XIRTUS you can also go to XIRTUS.com which is my website and you can find you know I've got merch I've got music go to my SoundCloud for Exertus go to my Instagram for Exertus go to my Minds for Exertus and you, you buy t-shirts on Teespring or Teepalwood I've got these pretty sweet t-shirts actually like I think they're pretty great I mean you know like you can get you can get all kinds of stuff if you look for Exertus and I think, you know, now there are podcasts on iTunes and Spotify and YouTube from other people. So check out some of those episodes. Something that I'm doing, I did a thing with Vice uh, a while ago. 
And it was kind of about hollow earth and looking for volcanoes and like links to underground civilizations and Tartaria and like the historical connection between resets and people going underground. Cause everyone has stories like the Peruvians have stories that they went underground for hundred years. The Hopi have stories that went underground for hundred years and the um, Siberians too, all these stories in Tunguska about people that survived resets through underground story the leprechauns too like puck is a leprechaun people don't know yet like leprechauns underneath their cute outfits from the 1800s they've got like horns and they've got you know hooves they're like these like irish devils you know they're kind of terrifying so we did a series called what is there because i did an episode for them their final episode it's called worlds next door or tales from the world next door i think it's worlds next door so on the 15th of march there's an episode about Exertus and Tartaria coming out on the new Vice uh, channel and on the internet. So check that out. And then every day you can go to Cast Castle on YouTube and you can watch what's going on at Cast Castle with Tim Cast and what we're doing because it's actually pretty fun. So, yeah. That's incredible, dude. I love it. I Yeah, you did tell me that. I think last time we talked, kind of hush-hush, like, hey, I might be doing this thing. I'm glad it came to fruition, dude. Very cool, man. I'm I'm excited to check that out. Definitely kind of weird. Like I last thing I was expecting myself to do this year was like work with Vice. But you know, like it's kind of like and going into the Death Star, like there's so many levels of proxy from Murdoch and the Mockingbird CIA at this point. That you just have these like interns that don't really know what the, you know, like levels of communication are. So if you know everything going on, all the levels, then you can do what you want, it looks like. So I don't know. I'm actually pretty proud of my special. I don't think that they know exactly what it's about which is very cool. Like the gift of Cassandra's prophecy, right? That the prophecy is true, but no one understands it. So, you know, let's just keep pondering orbs, man. But yeah, thanks for having me because it's been amazing to be able to hash out. These are like a lot of new thoughts that I've been trying to put together. So thanks for helping me, you know, think them out. I love <laughs> it. I love it. And thank you to the listeners who enjoyed this Wonderful conversation with Andreas III that we've had here on the My Family Think Some Crazy podcast. Plus the, I think there was one or two swap casts that you were a part of with me that I aired on the feed too. So there's a bunch of episodes. If you haven't listened already, go back and, and get up to date. He's been on Tinfall Hat a bunch. And like you said, you could search his name. I recommend Listen Notes. Seems to be a good website to catch all the podcasts. So search Andreas in Listen Notes and see what you get. You might find him on all kinds of podcasts. But until next time, folks, have a great moment wherever you are in the now. All right. What an episode with Andreas Exertus. And thank you for being here. Thank you for sticking around for the extended outro this episode i don't have a guest for the extended outro but it was such a heady you know heavy uh episode with facts and, and information and theories all rolled into one in this way that andreas is so good at i figured we would take some of the things he said and um and piece them together or or maybe just uh clarify because you know, in conversations like this, we touch on so many different things that some things just get left uh, unanswered or, or incomplete, rather. So, but one point that he was making, and I really, I don't want to say I agree or disagree with it, but I think it's worth making and it's definitely unsettling, uh, is this one right here. And we'll play it for you guys uh, right here, right now. 
imagine a you know future cybernetic augmentation where it becomes an employment necessity you know for underclass people like who are treated like utilities and you have a servant who acts like a battery bank you know and you have a number of servants who act as battery banks you might have a thousand people that are drones and you use them to process and work you know let's say you have to go to some other country you use someone else's body to, to operate that task or you have to be in three places at once because you're you know super wealthy so so many people will be trading away their time putting themselves into banks you know while this is existing and then simultaneously we we're talking earlier about neural link i mean neural link's first goal is to um help the disabled but very quickly <laughs> criminology is becoming interesting because this idea that we are putting people in a prison and we have to define a prison but like what a prison seems to be now is you know at at, at most inert let's say a waste of time and at, at, at less at, at more at more consequentially it is a torture place that is educating people to become sadistic and criminals and you have to look both directions. One is psychologically making people, like raping people is bad, right? And putting them in prison isn't making them better people. And, you know, big deal, because you can't make everyone a better person, but Neuralink can. If you can disable people from committing crimes, it's just literally just their body shuts down when they have a negative thought crime. That That's gonna be pretty popular as a solution for certain things. And if you can say, okay, this person committed these horrible atrocities we want to just you know put them in life in prison or you know execute them but we're trying to get rid of execution as a as a goal so you start to see more and more life in prison doesn't seem to make sense what if we take their personality and we give them another one we can make them like to clean up trash on the highway we can make them want to benefit society and a big thing about prison you know painting license plates is benefiting society so doesn't that just sound lovely we're going to neurolink up all of these folks who were so bad and, and broke the law and you know we're gonna create a a perfect new world where the criminals have a personality that's manufactured and altruism is programmed in wow doesn't that sound great uh, I wish the uh, politicians would line up and be the first to receive this, and maybe we'll let that run for a couple of years and see how they do. But let's go on with this clip and see what else Andreas has to share. People that have harmed society and repaying the debt to society. Criminologists love this idea. And it's not just for life sentences. What if you, you know, got six years? <laughs> and for six years you're a different person or you you're the same person but you love cleaning the highway you know or whatever it is you love picking up trash you're painting license plates you love doing community service you're participating maybe it's more maybe it's like they can train you so it doesn't have to be that you just love the highway cleaning it might be that you love doing you know math for a radio a satellite and you're living in this the, the, the kinds of levels of what you could be doing to be wow i mean like i'm contributing to society in ways i never could and then people will beg probably that they could have this even without committing crimes because why is it why is it that only the handicapped are given the opportunity to walk again why is it that the criminals are rewarded with a better life there will be transhumanists that will start to emerge from their recreational wow and we see that happening already i mean folks are lining up 
at GameStop. I mean, back when I was a kid, I remember that was the thing. You line up at GameStop, you get the game, you're the first one to play it, you then you you go on to dominate, <laughs> you know, and that has not changed. It's only evolved and gotten sicker and sicker and gotten to younger and younger kids. I remember when I was a kid, video games were still kind of fringe, you know. Uh, the cool kids weren't necessarily uh, talking about the fact that they were playing video games. Yes, everybody was playing video games, but when I was a kid, it still seemed like playing sports and, and you know, the uh, average Americana type stuff um, was still a lot more prevalent. You know, music, TV, sports, those seemed to be on the forefront of popular culture. And as I got older, video games sort of creeped in more and more, became more normalized. You start seeing weird games like, you know, for audiences that you're like, these types of kids who would like this don't play video games. And surely now everybody has uh, probably played a game at some point in their life, whether it be through their phone or through their computer, through a gaming console. And I think that's just the uh, first step towards this sort of augmented reality world, social credit system and all of that other stuff. And I don't want to avoid it. I think what, you know, what I've started to realize is we can't avoid it. And what I'm doing here with this podcast is a sort of resistance because we're using the same internet technology just in a completely different way. Instead of simulating some fake reality and giving you uh, roles to play and, and an outcome to accomplish, you know, we're here gamifying your actual life um, in the now through an audio podcast. And the synchronicities are how you change your life for the better, uh, you know, at, at your own risk, of course, because it may not work out as you intended. I know I certainly have felt many twists and turns on this synchronistic road but we move on to another really great point that andreas was making that i'd like to highlight here and i'm sorry about the teaser if you stuck around uh if you if you came to the show just because you heard we might be talking about joe rogan we did uh but sadly i might have you know Put the cart before the horse there uh there wasn't that much occult connection to joe rogan at all really it was just austin being kind of a strange place and i plan on elaborating on that uh, but let's hear what andreas had to say first austin is a uh, weird it's always been a weird and i mean that in an awesome way like weird is actually the danish word for destiny you know so like austin's weird in like the most etymological sense but there's there's magic in texas everywhere like the you know, the san antonio has the the cows everywhere and like you think about veda and the cows and the worship of the cows and how much cows matter they worship cows they just murder them too they sacrifice cows so there's a weird thing about texas in general but the theosophic society includes people at a distance Right. So when you think about people not in the lodge that are reading at home, the Soviet society is one of the first people to do that. And you have so many people getting these book orders. I mean, Smithson started this. Smithson started the Smithsonian. He would do this in, the, in Britain before they murdered him and they took his money and they built the Smithsonian Museum allegedly, right? Because he just died in Italy and they took his money and they said that he wrote a will saying he wanted to bring his money to America. The Theosophic Society had, you know, so much influence in France over the the transcendental Marxists, like the 
early Marx, Engels was super into these studies. And if you read like the the the, 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 the white tree of white magic by Alison Foster Bailey, those are the earliest books that led to the Great Invocation. Which the Great Invocation is the original summoning of the United Nations. The United Nations is started by Theosophic scholars, and they so much of it. It's like okay, who cares, right? But they. They build this building that has this room that's this weird, the freaking altar, and they say it's to serve not the unknown name God. Because remember in the Bible, like with the burning bush, and he doesn't give you his name. He's like, you know, I am that I am. But like, they they say we worship the God of many names, which is essentially like you know. I think there's a point where Lucifer says he has many names. So there's a there's a there's a bunch of people who suggest that this is a an evil thing. I'm not saying it necessarily is, but it's interesting they're talking about white magic, black magic, brightness, Luciferian, Bavarian, Illuminati, like beyond luminance, right? So, so much of this has to do with this idea, which is culturally accepted, that God and the devil are inverted. Because originally you have in the darkness comes out, you know, God is, there's darkness everywhere. So God is this feminine goddess womb thing that brightness emerges from and is separate from. So brightness is the first, Sun, you know the sun, right? Which is Lucifer. So Lucifer tends to be considered the 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 self-worshipping thing that doesn't align and doesn't uniformly harmonize, right? That we call light good. We should call light bad, perhaps. These are kinds of the questions that Theosophics brought up. All right. Now I realize that we really didn't get into the OTO at all, Alistair Crowley, and the whole like. Well. I didn't want to disappoint anyone, so I figured I would do some research and see what I can find. And, ooh, I did find some stuff. So, Austin historically uh, was known as Waterloo, which is interesting, a uh, famous place in Belgium. Um, well, turns out old Austin had a quote unquote bohemian vibe. Now, uh, for those aware of that term, uh, Bohemian Grove has that association with the sort of German um, immigrants, Czech immigrants, uh, that area in Europe, very much associated with these types of esoteric groups. And sure enough, they ended up in Austin. Go figure. Uh, well, you know, you can Google the OTO in Austin you'll find a couple groups that seem to be practicing stuff to this day uh, just to make it clear I'm not against the OTO uh, I think people practicing magic is pretty normal and happens in a lot of different ways within a lot of different cultures I find it fascinating for sure but I don't think the reason why I'm looking into this stuff is to prove uh, anyone's up to no good um, but the Illuminati, curiously enough, <laughs> I think has a reputation that precedes itself, right? I don't have to tell you guys that the Illuminati is probably up to some bad shit. Well, guess what? When looking into the founding of the Ordo Templi Orientis, I found that it was started by two gentlemen primarily. And their names, hold on, let's get the names right get the names absolutely right so you can trace it back to two men um a german man named franz hartman and primarily theodore russ as well as another man named 
Carl Kellner. So, so yeah, Carl Kellner and Theodore Russ created the OTO. And it says here, when you look into Theodore Russ, uh, interesting, if you're familiar with the Tartaria subject, you know the Russ Ward Empire is a big deal. Uh, our friend Ari talks about the Russ Ward Empire a lot. So this man, Theodore Roos, his full name is Albert Carl Theodore Roos. Um, he was also known by his neo-gnostic bishop title, Carolus Albertus Theodorus Peregrinus. Interesting. He's described as a tantric occultist Freemason, alleged police agent, journalist, singer, and head of Ordo Templi Orientis. So... In 1880, he participated in an attempt to revive Adam Weisop's Bavarian Order of Illuminati. While in England, he became friends with William Wynne Westcott, the Supreme Magus of the Societas Rosicruciana in Anglia, and one of the founders of the Hermetic Order of the, of the Golden Dawn. Uh, Westcott provided Roos with a charter dated July 26, 1901 for the Swedenborg Rite of Masonry and a letter of authorization dated February 24th, 1902. Let's look into this Swedenborg Rite. What's this? We got so many tabs open. The Swedenborg Rite was a fraternal order modeled on Freemasonry and based upon the teachings of Emanuel Swedenborg. It comprised six degrees, apprentice, fellow craft, master, neophyte, illuminated, theosophite, blue brother, and red brother. It was created in Avignon in 1773 by the Marquis de Thron. It was initially a political organization whose aims might bring Freemasonry into disrepute. Although politically ideology was eventually discarded Sorry, although the political ideology was eventually discarded, the version of the Swedenborg Rite died out within a decade of its founding. Starting in the 1870s, the Rite was resurrected as a hermetic organization. The the version, this version faded out sometime around 1908. In 1982, a patent of the Swedenborg Rite was transmitted by the English Freemason Desmond Bork in his office at the British Museum to Masonic author Michel Moramarco, who, after revising the rituals by Bork's permission, revived that tradition in Italy under the title of Antiso Rito Noachita, Ancient Noachide Rite. Very, very strange stuff. So for those who might have gotten lost there, a rite seems to be like the structure of degrees through which you pass. Now, another group was mentioned there that I want to go back to. Um, their headquarters are on High Street in Hampstead, London, which is interesting because the Skull and Bones tomb is also on High Street, not in London, in New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, <clears throat> either way interesting synchronicity we have the societas rosicrucians in anglia 
Societas is a Rosicrucian esoteric Christian order formed by Robert Wentworth Little in 1865, although some sources acknowledge the date to be 1866. Members are confirmed from the ranks of subscribing Master Masons of a Grand Lodge in Amity with the United Grand Lodge of England. Mm, interesting. So this is a group that only Freemasons can be a part of. And it is a Rosicrucian. I definitely want to get Stephen Snyder on the podcast because I remember him talking about how Rosicrucianism is a LARP. It doesn't exist uh, the way we think it does. And I wholeheartedly disagree with that. But that's a conversation for a different day. Austin is weird. Another weird thing is that the word weird means destiny. Very strange, especially considering Austin's exponential growth. I mean, we're talking, uh, let's see, one of the biggest capital cities. Uh, let's see. The fourth most populous city in Texas and the second most populous state capital city after Phoenix, Arizona very interesting stuff and like i said historically immigrated uh germans immigrated to austin and we see this sort of theme these big german mega corporations and then you look and you see how many fortune 500 companies are nestled over there in austin they're placed so snug right on that colorado river bend uh, the goddess of liberty on the Texas state capitol grounds. I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff when it comes to Austin. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. If you're living in Austin, shout out to you. Hit me up if any of this stuff was interesting or resonated. Let me know what you think about the theosophical or possibly OTO connections to the city of Austin. That's about all I have time for right now. Uh, to look into this stuff but yeah very interesting stuff bohemian austin uh, no surprise no surprise all right one last clip from uh from andreas and then we will take it away here folks thank you so much for sticking around with us in the my family pick some crazy podcast you know where to show us some love on patreon patreon.com slash mftic that is the place to get all the bonus content you get a spirit animal name and you join the family we have an exclusive telegram chat that goes with that and send me your address and i'll send you some merch we got stickers we got t-shirts now finally folks go over to the episode link Go over to the episode description, hit the link for the merch, check out our t-shirts. My family thinks I'm crazy t-shirts. That's right. Let the whole world know that your family thinks you're crazy too. I love the sound of that. Bunch of people wearing my family thinks I'm crazy t-shirts out there. Won't uh, be so lonely when that is a reality. Either way, we got one last clip from my man, Andreas, and I think this is a good one to end it on. Like we are repeating loops, you know? So there's a point when hippies cause their kids to react and you get yuppies. We had libertines, which led to Puritans because they were like, wow, there are people having sex in the streets in London. In parks, it's just this crazy debauched Sodom and Gomorrah fest with people getting syphilis and dying in 27, all because there's no rules against it really. Because it was a free democracy, right? They killed the king and they had Cromwell and it was like a dick, you know, eventually the, the Protestant Puritans 
created more and more laws through democracy that they begged the king to come back. So like, look, we don't need democracy. Just give us self-determination again. Just like promise we're allowed to do what we want and that you'll enforce that as a dictator. And the king had to leave Amsterdam because he's like, all right, all right. But you know, this is how these loops happen. So at some point people were thinking, okay, we have these, we have these rules that we have to follow. They're going to, they're going to like keep us as a society in a norm. And someone comes along and says, hey, those rules are stoplights. And if you had sirens, you could go right through them, you know? And so the, the, the theosophics kind of opened that idea, like you could be a special person. You could have a special reason to break all the rules. Let's discuss what Andreas was just laying out there. I mean, what he's talking about is a generational cycle that is plotted out. Uh, these sorts of uh, elites know exactly the ebb and flow of the generations and sort of what forces will create the next reactions that they can then game those reactions from those reactions and then the cycle starts all over again thus the concept of this great reset and in a typical exertus fashion andreas kind of spits out a bunch of stuff there that maybe not everyone is familiar with so i figured i'd go and look and and look into who this cromwell figure really is is an interesting part of world history really because it's been said that when king charles was executed it was the last thing standing in the way of a constitutional um let's see what they with charles death the main obstacle to the establishment of a constitutional system had been removed the monarchy as charles understood it had disappeared forever and now we live in a world where, you know, we're told that the, the monarchy is just a vestigial, uh, in its vestigial state, it's no longer an operative body within the parliamentary or within the United Kingdom, we'll say. I don't want to mic mince terms because it is all very detailed, but... I think a lot of what happens in the West hinges on English history. I mean, we predominantly speak English. Understanding the history of this land is extremely important, and I will now take this time to give a bloody shout-out to all our English listeners. Shout-out to you guys in UK. Sorry for the god-awful accent there. I did not mean to mock you guys. I just appreciate all of our english listeners so so very much and i appreciate you guys dealing with the american butchering of your lovely language and that does it for today folks another wonderful episode of the my family Think some crazy podcast another appearance by my friend andreas exertus you can find him doing all kinds of great stuff over with tim pool in the Tim Pool compound and like Andreas mentioned he's got a lot of content you can find it all at exertus.com that's x-i-r-t-u-s.com be sure to follow up with our friend Andreas there and I hope you have a wonderful new year 2022 is going to be awesome fingers crossed a lot of great things a lot of breakthroughs less negativity more positivity 
less doom and gloom, more light and love. And with that, folks, enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now.